Episode number 82 of the Exploring Antinatalism podcast, a podcast showcasing the wide range of perspectives and ideas throughout antinatalism as it exists today through interviews with antinatalists and non-antinatalist thinkers and creators of all kinds. Now running five years strong, I'm your host, Amanda Sukunik, and today I'm speaking with the translator of the new English translation of what has long been considered the holy grail of antinatalist literature, Peter Wetzel Zapfa's 1941 doctoral dissertation, On the Tragisque, or as it's known in English, On the Tragic, Ryan L. Scholler. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Exploring Antinatalism podcast in person for the first time ever. Ryan, welcome to the Exploring Antinatalism podcast. It's an honor to have you on the show today in this, the first and hopefully not the last uh, in-person episode of the show. Very, very excited. Um, Ryan, you have done seemingly the impossible. You have done what many, as I understand it, have set out to do before you and failed, which is to translate Peter Wetzel Zapfa's uh, 1941 doctoral dissertation, what many in the antenatal sphere consider to be the holy grail of pre-Benetarian antinatalist works on the tragic, also known in its original Norwegian language as, would you mind saying it again? On the tragisk. Um, so let me start out today by saying uh, on behalf of the entire antinatalist community and the droves of extremely appreciative Zapfa fanboys, Thank you, Ryan. Um, truly, you have put a very happy smile on a lot of otherwise very dour, pessimistic faces. <laughs> and I think that's true, isn't it? Everybody, please say their thanks in the comments. Um, so truly, we have so much to speak about today. Um, but first off, I would really love to know a little bit about yourself. Um, so as long as it's all right with you, um, I'd love to ask you simply just who is Ryan Scholler? Well, first, Amanda, I really appreciate you having me on the uh, podcast. It's a great opportunity to, to talk about the translation, um, great opportunity to get the word out that, it, that it, 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 the translation is in existence and will be available very soon. So I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So uh, who was Ryan Scholler? Well, um, so for the past 22 years, I've, I've been a philosophy professor. Okay. And uh, I, I grew up in Southern California and... Went to started my college and university studies quite late, about nine years after high school. Okay, several failed life attempts uh, before that, and uh, it actually was an advantage to to wait some time. Yeah, then you know I started my education at a community college in Orange County, California, and then started studying philosophy at University of California, Irvine. I got my bachelor's degree there, and then then I came to Northern Illinois uh, in. 2001, did a master's degree at Northern Illinois University. And at UC Irvine and Northern Illinois, I was focused primarily on early modern philosophy and uh, philosophy of science, sort of analytical tradition and, and history of philosophy. But then I went on and pursued a PhD at Loyola University of Chicago. Oh, amazing. And was there for five years and uh, 
sort of switched my focus to Immanuel Kant. And I did my dissertation on, on Kant's practical philosophy and got a job teaching pretty quickly after that, or actually in the middle of it, uh, at, at community colleges. My entire teaching career has been at community colleges, which sometimes I get knocked, but I, there are advantages to community colleges. Uh, Absolutely. Sometimes you go, you go to a prestigious university because there are prestigious professors there, and then you get there, you never see those prestigious professors. Yeah. Or you see them in a auditorium of 2,500 people and, right. and never really get to know them. And, uh, community colleges have advantage of small class sizes and easy access to professors and so on. So I've taught for 22 years in community colleges in Northern Illinois, in uh, Arizona, and in the Detroit, Detroit metro, metro. I've been, the last 12 years, I've been at uh, Henry Ford College in Dearborn, Michigan. Excellent. And just recently left my full-time position there, and I'm sort of in semi-retirement, although I'm still doing a little bit of part-time teaching and philosophy. And uh, so that's who I am. I live in Chicago. My partner uh, lives in West Michigan and is an environmental studies professor in, at a university there. Awesome. He's been there for a little while. And then I have some property in central Michigan where I go down, at, central uh, Illinois, sorry, where I go down and do fun building projects. And, Lovely. Yeah, so that's who I am. Excellent. Thank you for all those details. That's amazing. So can you tell me a little bit about your history as a, a translator? How did you, how, with with all of those activities, how did you manage to fit in also becoming a, a translator? And and how did you come to have such facility with Norwegian? Are, are you, are English and Norwegian the only two languages that you speak and or translate? And and what other works have you, have you done besides this one? I'd say my, my, uh, my interest in languages started when I was at university uh, in, as an undergrad, studying philosophy, you're sort of expected to to study some language connected to whatever philosophical period you're focused on. So early early on, I was studying German and French mostly. Yeah, and then at UC Irvine, I did quite a bit of um, German study, and so that German was really my first language that I focused on. Oh wow! And while I was working on my dissertation, my my Dissertation, the topic of it is actually connected to translation because there's a sort of a standard criticism of Kant's moral theory that um, you you hear quite a bit. And I argued that it's a bit of a pseudo problem because um, translators of Kant failed to recognize a distinction in the original German okay. that, that is there. So that's kind of when I really started to, to see translation as a, a bit of a archaeological yeah, effort to yeah. sort of mine down and find hidden distinctions that are sometimes missing in translation. And then, you know, for many years, I translated untranslated philosophical works and literary works for my own purpose. Um, so, yeah, that's how that, that's how that became. So I, I can I can do all right in German, you know, speaking, reading writing French I'm a little better because I, I got really interested in French later and spent time in France you know practicing uh and what might shock you and and some uh listeners viewers is that I don't actually speak Norwegian yeah my my ability to read Norwegian comes from first of all from a a bit of confidence in reading German and mm -hmm. um most of my ability to, to read Norwegian comes from 
translating stuff. But when I when I started, wow, my my ability to read Norwegian and Danish, which are very similar, was yeah. weak at best, and uh, it was a very slow process in the beginning. Yeah, there's enough commonality between uh, German and Norwegian and Danish that uh, I felt comfortable pursuing learning it. Okay, and uh, you know the the there's a lot of technical philosophical yeah jargon or technical terms that that translate and so i i was confident that i could go in, go in there and learn and it was very slow in the beginning but yeah it was in several years thousands and thousands of hours and no doubt i've i've been to norway a, a couple of times and you'll find in anywhere in scandinavia that pretty much anybody speaks almost perfect english yeah. so as a language learner it's a little different than say going to France where you're sort of expected to address people in French. And so there's a lot of practice opportunities. They might not go very well, but uh, you just don't find that in, in Scandinavia. It, it's, yeah, that's what I've it's heard. ineffective to yeah. try to practice your broken right. Norwegian or Danish with, with natives. And so they easily slip into English. It's very hard to learn. And plus the time it would take to become a, a fluent speaker of Norwegian. I just devoted that time to translating instead. And I figured that was a more useful uh, use of my time. Certainly. I mean, that's it's incredibly <laughs> ambitious. But I mean, you picked, you kind of picked the right work to try to do something like that with, right? Like given yeah. the length of this monster, yeah. was it 570 pages yes. or something? So by the end, you became quite fluent in, in reading it. I mean, yeah, I'd say within a year to 18 months, amazing. it was, it was, yeah. uh, I was looking up a lot less words and yeah. And, uh, yeah. So my reading increased quite rapidly. Wow. Maybe in 18 months or something like that. That's pretty incredible. Um, Ryan, I ask some version of this question to all of my guests. Why are you, or are you not an antinatalist? Yeah. So I would not, characterize myself as an antinatalist um partly because I, I to be honest with you i don't have a deep enough knowledge of mm -hmm. antinatalism uh, to be honest i just haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about it yeah uh i've been spending time thinking about it since i got invited to do this podcast naturally but yeah. uh I mean, I'm aware of the position i know some of the main arguments uh, revolve around it but i'm not i'm not uh, well versed in it but i would say you know i don't have any adamant opposition to it it's an interesting position i think you know my f at first glance my response to it is maybe with a bit of skepticism which is probably natural for anybody that would hear about it and you know four or five sort of objections immediately come to my mind yeah. most if not all of them i'm sure have been addressed in the antinatalist literature probably on this podcast even um i think you know so one of the things that maybe causes me concern is um well you know this dr benatar's uh, asymmetry argument yeah. there, there's a there's a debate out there online uh, where dr benatar is having a debate about antinatalism with jordan peterson I don't know if yes yes yeah. yeah it's been a while since i watched that one but yes yeah, and um, Jordan Peterson raises this objection, which would be a sort of a classic objection against any utilitarian argument, mm -hmm. that um, how are we supposed to measure these uh, 
pleasures and pains, you know, the, the suffering involvement in a, in a human lifetime and the, the pleasures or joys or whatever. Yeah. How are we supposed to measure them? I think Jordan Peterson said something like, um, he raised the example, you know, it's, it's entirely possible that a few moments of romantic bliss could outweigh an entire lifetime of suffering. You know, that, that type of argument, I'm mm -hmm. a little sympathetic to that argument, or at least interested in what kind of response could be given to it. But it, I have a couple other possible objections that um, involve some interesting paradoxes. Well, one objection, and this is what's interesting is I think Safa raises, even though Safa is in a sense an antinatalist thinker, he raises yeah. objections. Mm, okay, interesting. In in on the tragic yeah. that are, at the very least need to be entertained by an antinatalist. Sure, okay. You know, the strength of any argument is how well it responds to objections. So the more you yeah. can get on the table, the better off you are. Yeah. Um, so one of them, and I think this this really comes from Schopenhauer. I'm of the opinion that Schopenhauer is probably the greatest influence on Sapa, at least in, in on yeah. the tragic. And, you know, Schopenhauer in a, in a, in a short essay called What is Man? That's in his later writings. He, mm -hmm. he said that the greatest contributor to an individual person's happiness or unhappiness is is their character. Mm -hmm. By character, he means sort of their their disposition, their temperament, their we might say personality. Now we would say they're hardwiring. Mm -hmm. So stuff that's completely out of their control. Yeah. And you have um, <clears throat> you have you know people who no matter how horrible their lives are. They still seem to be relatively happy, and then you have people. No matter how wonderful their their lives are, they still seem they're miserable. To be yeah, miserable. yeah. So yeah. you have this this component uh, that that sort of forms your experience of of your life that is sort of looming over how happy or unhappy a person might be. Yeah. I, I think that like an asymmetry argument is going to be hard to make in that context because uh, you know. Yes, I might be able to say that in my lifetime, the the pain, the suffering, the the discontentment might outshadow the pleasures, but I, I, it'd be hard to say that about another person. Uh, at least that's a a potential argument, one that's yeah. by himself ra raises. And that's and in the in on the tragic. Yeah, there, I have a couple quotes. Yeah, I'd love to hear them. Absolutely, already, but, sure, sure. And you know that some people have made, a, especially Norwegian speakers, have made a. a a point to emphasize Safa's sense of humor. And I think we see this, especially yeah. as examples. And I think this is the very last example quote I gave you. Yeah, so uh, Safa says, um, we are all aware from the daily press of the jubilant wife who has been ill and poor for 75 years. The husband has died at sea. Five children are insane. Five are crippled and five are in prison. But she is in a good mood all day long. <laughs> So this this is you know this is an example of uh, stuff as gallows humor, dark humor, whatever you. Because he was also a humorist. Yeah, he was. Of, yeah, yeah. That is a, an, that's an incredible quote. <laughs> but that that sounds a lot like Schopenhauer to me, and I think that yeah, it's in it's raising this objection to you know the the influence of a person's disposition, temperament, hardwiring on yeah how they. You know, on paper, you could say that that woman's life has had more suffering than 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 uh, joy, but her experience of oh, that's another story. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think I have one more quote that's like that too. Okay. 
Oh, here we go. I found it. Number 18 on the on the list I gave you there. He says it must at least, this is what I'm talking about, him raising a potential objection that at the very least antinatalists would need to address. It must at least be explained why an undeserved suffering is a physiognomic expression of the world being to a higher degree than a deserved suffering, a beneficial or fortunate course. A possible statistic might even show surplus on the positive side. So yeah, this is this is addressing yeah. the same the same issue. So that that's a concern that, that I would have, and I'm sure yeah. antinatalists have talked about this objection all night. And and I don't want to take up too much of our time by you know this antinatalist trying to uh, rebut <laughs> that one right. and those objections. But I guess what I would say is I mean certainly it always matters what an individual says about their exp the experiences of their own lives. Right. And you know I think I think life is all kinds of things. Right. It's it is suffering or has those elements in it, but it's also got tons of joy and all kinds of my own life. I I love doing this podcast. I have a huge toy collection. I'm an artist. I mean. I, you know, I, I got, I got, I got, it's, it's not, it's not just one thing, right? but I think when we, I think there's, there's what the, what antinatalism, at least in the contemporary sense is trying to get at is something a little beyond just the individual's experience. I mean, when we roll the dice with procreation, we're in, inevitably going to be creating some people at least that are not able to take any of those joys. Right. So there's all of this perhaps even maybe a surplus of joy but it is kind of coming at the expense of all of this Tremendous. misery that right. there is no there is no hug that can cure there is no sun sunshiny day that's going to alleviate and there's just nothing that fixes that and there's nothing that really justifies that in my mind right. at least yeah yeah and connected to this and and, and something that i think is um uh, important to think about is, you know, if a person came to me and, and so the basic position of antinatalism, correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's unethical yes, to exactly. have children. Yes. And so if somebody came to me and asked me, do you think it's unethical to have children? I would answer like a good philosopher and I'd say, well, it depends on what you mean by unethical. Okay. Yeah. Because I think, you know, like Dr. Benadar maybe is operating from a, a traditional utilitarian uh, approach, uh, Probably not actually. Oh. Probably more of a deontologist. Okay. But he doesn't say. He won't say. Okay. He won't say what school of thought he comes from. Yeah, but as somebody who's studied Kant at length in his moral theory, my when I hear the word unethical, I immediately think, okay, so are we talking about a moral obligation that that I have as an individual? But that moral obligation is somehow connected to the moral obligations that all rational beings have. Mm -hmm. So is there is there a universalizability to this moral obligation? Yeah. And that immediately, the way Kant talks, if that if that were the case, that would immediately convert into some sort of um, ethical program that all rational beings should be uh, working towards. towards. Yeah. And so when I yeah. think about an, uh, a universalizable antinatalist ethical program, that's where I start to uh, think of some problems that might arise. Mm -hmm which are obvious and you would, I'm sure you've talked about them before, but you you basically would need to somehow convince all mm -hmm. uh, fertile human beings mm -hmm. not to procreate. And that, that to me sounds like a, a far-fetched impossible task. Probably impossible. We're I trying, think, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> but I yeah. Think, I think the, the instinct to rope re, uh, reproduce is, is way more powerful than any philosophical instinct that 
the the general population would or could ever have. And it, there's a couple of interesting paradoxes. One of them is so if you're in a situation or humans are in a situation where we need, you know, the masses to take on a certain belief. Mm. It seems to me historically that the way that happens is usually through through these uh, exceptional individuals, you know, mm. geniuses who sway entire civilizations. Yeah. So this interesting paradox is that that type of if you're if you're an antinatalist, that type of a, a genius or exceptional person who would have the ability to sway entire civiliz civilizations to think this way is most likely to emerge among antinatalists. Probably, you know, yeah. if you, this goes so. back to Plato's Republic, where you talk about these, you know, breeding programs, where you you want to uh, you want to maximize the exceptional abilities of certain sections of the population. So mm -hmm. I, I think that, and then Safa may be referring to this type of person with, with the phrase "the last messiah." You need you need a, a somebody yeah. you can sway mm -hmm. a huge population. Well, if that person is most likely to be born to antinatalist parents and antinatalist parents have ceased reproduction then that person that could bring about the ethical program would never be born so it's an interesting paradox well there's two, two points i want to bring up there is that do you think that people are more programmed to have sex or to procreate because i i think that procreation is likely we're, we're obviously we're biologically designed to procreate there's no argument there right. we, but i think we're it's almost sort of like the DNA. Sex is the tool of the right. DNA to get us to do that. It it, right. it, it sort of um, entices us with pleasure. It candies the procreation sure. essentially, yeah, but procreation itself is more of a a, a, a cultural mechanism. I yeah. think at this point, and I also I could see that. Yeah, yeah, and and, and I also think just just before I forget, <laughs> I mean, I think your other point about sort of the, you know, the the antinatalist super child, you right, know, right. Um, my parents weren't antinatalist. Right. It's I, not it's not a guarantee that that's where they're going to emerge. And this is what Plato's Republic addresses. Right. Yes. Sometimes you got to move the, the, the children around so that they end up with the right parents. Yeah. But the probability is they're more likely to emerge, uh, you know, like a. a a a deep reader is more likely to be born to other deep readers. Uh, doesn't mean that deep readers aren't born to non-readers, but they're more the probability just genetically, and then the environment that they're going to grow up in. They're more likely to emerge. But you know, do you think philosophy is genetic? There's a genetic component to the kind of philosophy that people. Yeah, I think there's at least a, to? a component. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A component that and the just the the upbringing being surrounded with philosophical talk and books and things like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's highly debatable. It's, I mean, it's I'm a fun paradox to think. It, about. it absolutely <laughs> is. I mean, you know, you, it definitely is a conversation with an antinatalism. Like if you could produce a child, like without, with, you know, some sort of magic happens and you right. could absolutely produce a child who, you know, will grow up to, you know, lead humanity to antinatalist extinction. Is it right. ethical to create that child? I mean, it's it, and it's a thought experiment, right. obviously. And it wouldn't be ethical to do it, but it, it wouldn't be ethical to the child to do it. Right. But it would probably be. There's probably, yeah. I mean, 
Yes, it would probably be. Yeah, and it probably would be the most ethical thing to do to produce the child, so like that given your suffering ends. Program, yeah. yeah, but I, I, but I don't. I mean, obviously, that's never going to happen. No, and 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 there are antinatalist schools of thought, like with you know, I don't even know if you know who David Pierce is. I mean, he's a, a soft antinatalist, he's a transhumanist mostly. Okay, and so he's you know he wants to genetically re-engineer human beings right. so that procreation becomes ethical because we won't be producing people that suffer right so there's all kinds of different attitudes that antinatalists take yeah. towards the future that aren't necessarily extinctionist but i i do think that antinatalists i suspect anyway that antinatalists are created by information so it's sort of like if you if you think about the you know a lot of the christian gnostic sects mm -hmm. were antinatal or they right. had sort of proto-antinatalist thinking and the Cathars, if they, I mean, there's some debate other whether they existed or blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah, but they were all murdered, you know, so their antinatalism couldn't survive. They had no internet. They had no way of sharing their right. memes. You know, they probably did need to create children right. in order to further their antinatalism or their, um, they were probably also vegetarians and, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, they were very close to being vegan, blah, blah, blah. But I don't think we live in that world now. No, it's a very different world. Yeah, yeah. the possibilities have expanded incredibly. Uh, I'm I'm very sympathetic to this to the argument that we haven't talked about, which is um, the fact that when when a child is born, that child has not consented to live that life. Yeah, yeah. And that that is a strong argument to me. I, I don't know what to do with it, mm -hmm. but you know, you, you do as a human being in in times of suffering, or maybe yeah. frequently in a lifetime, think, well, I didn't agree to this. Yeah. You know, really we think of consent as essential to an ethical yeah. transaction like that. And it, but of course it would be impossible to get that consent. So it, 100%. it, it does start to sound. Really, I mean, it's, it, it's funny the, the consent argument is fascinating because some people vehemently believe that it's the strongest argument for antinatalism and other antinatalists won't go near it uh -huh. because it, 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 see, it seems to be talking about beings who don't actually exist yeah, and there's, there's an absurdity exist. in it. And it's something that our detractors kind of pull apart. They, they pull that apart and then just shut right. off from there. Um, there's one other paradox that I, th I find entertaining in sort of a sci-fi kind of way. And that is, you know, so talking about talking about an ethical program yeah. to bring extinction to the human race intentionally um so there's various ways you could go about about doing that one of them is to sort of disseminate antinatalist thought yeah and try to get everybody to think that way but yeah. that might be a very ineffective way to do it there might be more effective ways to do it so for example um maybe maybe a nuclear holocaust is a much more effective way to bring extinction to the, mm -hmm. to the human race and this starts to get uh pretty wild because you might end up so if you were convinced that you had an ethical ethical obligation to bring the the human species to extinction uh that might in and let's just say for sake of argument that the most effective way to do that would be through a nuclear holocaust that would mean that you what you should be spending all your time and energy towards is constructing the red button trying to get a nuclear holocaust to happen in right. other words trying to trying to trying to promote it and it seems like that would involve all sorts of wild covert and clandestine attempts to you know get great powers to yeah. have tensions rise and it starts to sound wow this is really far away from 
where we started. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me a little bit of liberation theology, where you you know where Jesus's command to go into all the world and preach the gospel over time converts into you know running guns in Central America mm, for yeah, right for right communist uh, revolutions, and it's well, wow. How do we get from uh, preach the gospel to every creature to now running guns? So there's something there that's interesting. Yeah, and and believe me, all of those conversations are are alive and well in in the antinatalist sphere, Mm -hmm. uh, much to the chagrin of of, of half the community. (laughs) But I mean, it. it, I think you know. Look, I am an ethical. What I try to. Right, but I think I think I think is well coined as ethical extinctionism. So, yes, I do. Well, first of all, my my antenna, and we'll kind of get to this subject too, especially because I think it does pertain somewhat to um, some of the material in in uh, the Last Messiah. Because mm-hmm. I'm I'm what's called the sentiocentric antinatalist. So I believe that humans, obviously, the antinatalism pertains to human beings. I'm for the cessation of procreation and the extinction of human human life but i also think that it pertains to animal life as well that we have a we have a responsibility to you know it it we're all the products of dna Mm -hmm. living things so if if there's more suffering out there in nature than there is in i mean i know it's highly debatable but i i believe that there's more suffering in nature than there is in human existence and i think we have a responsibility to the rest of animals to uh, also prevent their to their procreation as mm-hmm. well, um, and I think those are where the discussions on something like the red button, nuclear, or whatever, sort of do come into play. That mm-hmm. sort of like, well, we have we can do this. I mean, conceivably, anybody in any way, theoretically, human beings could through whatever mechanism, through whatever. <laughs> um, uh, it's conceivable that yeah. we could extinct ourselves through antinatalism uh, voluntarily. Sure. The animals are, you cannot make these arguments to lions. No. So I think that that sort of becomes, so if we became extinct through antinatalism, would it be in our ethical remit to then destroy the planet or destroy right. the rest of, of, of sentient life? Yeah. And, how do you do that in the most ethical way possible? There are also conversations about, you know, we do it now today, even in today's world of sterilizing animals. Is that a way that we could, mm-hmm. you know, somehow ethically do that to the rest of life? Yeah. I mean, there will be an extinction no matter what. I mean, whether Actually, antinatalism has yeah. absolutely no hold or or, or power on guaranteed. life itself. And I, I, I think at some point this conversation turns into okay how bad is that going to be right and can we make it any better <laughs> yeah. so you, you want yeah. to hasten it yeah and alleviate as much suffering along the way exactly. as possible yeah. there's also the the problem with the the red button yeah. solution is that even if there were a nuclear holocaust you'd still have humans who survive it <laughs> yeah i mean i mean the and red they button would is... immediately begin to procreate <laughs> i know exactly so, so it's not it a solution even, either even do it. No, and that and that's why I mean I, I don't think any one solution or any one that's why there is sort of this needs to be the greatest if this is the road that humanity takes right. if this is the future that that humanity decides to go on this has to be like the greatest human project of all time and right. it's you know we we can sit here and in, in on Zoom and have these discussions but I mean it really does have to be something that 
yeah. you know, minds need to, you know, great minds need to be put, need to be put to work. Right. Yeah. And, and I think there is even in Kant, there's a, uh, you know, we talk, uh, we talked about the position being sort of needing to be universalizable. Yeah. But I think there is also, there's places where Kant suggests that you might not be able to find anybody in the entire world who's fulfilling an obligation. Yeah. So you might, you might have one person who says, yeah, I know nobody else is going to mm -hmm. fulfill this moral obligation, but I'm still going to fulfill it. And so there, you know, I'm sympathetic to that kind of yeah. position. I mean, I don't have children. It's, it's not yeah. because I was an antinatalist. It was, you know, I jokingly say it was because I can barely take care of myself. So <laughs> that was why I, <laughs> I didn't bring children into the world. Yeah. And then, you know, they, of course, there are people who become antinatalists after they've had children, which yes. Sapa addresses this, actually. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a quote out there. Where he talks, well, you got me to nature and to God. You got me. But my wife and I are two. We only made one. So the math is right. We're going in the he right direction. He had a child? No. Oh, oh, oh. He said oh, I'm sorry. If, if I were to. Yes. If I were to have a child, then. Yeah. One could say, mm -hmm. well, the math's going in the right direction, even though maybe I ultimately right. failed to, to not have children. Didn't bring that many there. Right. Right. I, I, I haven't multiplied. Saying. My wife and I haven't multiplied the numbers. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there certainly are a lot of a lot of antinatalist parents today. So, I mean, it's. Yeah. Yeah. And I was also going to say that I think throughout on the tragic that Sapa raises uh, the issue of, you know, I, I think you can have. Uh, we see this a lot in virtue theory, going all the way back to Aristotle, ancient Greeks, where there might be general moral obligations, but in practice they're different between people. So, for example, yeah. if you have a, and you know, Aristotle's big on on virtues like um, courage or temperance, things like that. And so, mm -hmm. like in the temperance virtue, we're talking about eating and drinking and things like that. So, if you're if you're a linebacker in the NFL what it means for you to overeat is very different than what it might mean for, I usually use the example of Billy Barty, but Billy Barty's long gone and most people don't know. I don't know who that is. I'm sorry. <laughs> he was a, a, a dwarf actor in, okay. in the 70s, 80s. Okay. He, was, he was big. So I, I, whatever the equivalent would be, or, you know, any, any person of, of small stature, mm -hmm. you know, the, so if you have this general moral obligation to not overeat. Yeah you know, what, what a person of small stature, what overeating is to them is very different than the linebacker in the NFL. Yeah. So, so you can't have a general, you can't have like an amount yeah. that, that all humans should, should restrain themselves right. from. And so I think you can have an antinatalist. I see it in on the tragic uh, moral obligation for some. So Zappa gives the example of a person who has some sort of exceptional ability. Yeah maybe to do philosophy or to, to write literature or, or whatever it is. And if they were to have children, that would get in the way of them sort of realizing this exceptional ability, putting it into action and, yeah. and so on. So they they had, would have, in that sense, if they have a moral obligation to maximize this exceptional ability that they've been born with, then they, that implies a moral obligation not to have children because it would interrupt Mm. So this is sort of like a subjective yeah. antinatalist obligation. Well, it wouldn't be an ethical program for all human beings, just right. for right. for that particular person. Right. Well, we can all only do the best we can, right? Like yeah. I I I it's um 
It's fun to I love, I, I love I, thinking about it. I love thinking. Yeah, no, this hey, this is my favorite subject in the world. I mean, I I I don't really know if antinatalism will win, but I <laughs> I think ad, I mean for my part anyway. I think advocating is the right thing to do. And if the ultimate goal is the extinction of the human race, it will win. Just maybe not by its own hands. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, it's, we'll be able to take credit. for We're it. gonna get our way one way or the other, but I mean, I, I'd prefer that it happens in the most sure. ethical way possible, or sure. as less as least suffering as possible. Yeah, and you could say that uh, limiting population or slowing the growth of human population or reversing the growth of human population in the end, when the final wipeout occurs, if there's less that are being wiped out, you yeah, you exactly. still contributed something to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a long answer to that. <laughs> Are you an antinatalist? That was great. I honestly, it was one of my favorite answers to that question because it's it it the complexity. I much prefer people answer answer it in its full complexity right. than you know kind of run away from the question, which is what several several people have done oh. in the past. So I, I that was great. <laughs> we got into a lot of great territory there. No, no, I know you're not. Of course not. Um, well, I I. There's so there's so much we could we could continue on that course for uh for several hours I'm sure, but um I think we should we should per perhaps go back to uh, a bit a bit of a bit of um leading our way towards uh, on the tragic yeah, um Peter Wetzel's Apfa is of course an extremely beloved and well known author uh, to those of us in the antenatal world really primarily for his short story The Last Messiah however those uh, for those out there that might not um, that might be listening who aren't familiar with him at all. Would you mind just telling our audience a little bit about who Zappa was? Yeah, so Zappa was a, a Norwegian uh, philosopher, born in 1899, died in 1990, not that long ago. Yeah, not that long ago at all. Had a conversation. Yeah. It was pretty amazing. He could have been on the Exploring Antidilism podcast. Yeah. Well, I'd gotten my act together sooner. Yeah. Um, he was he was more than a philosopher. He grew up in uh, the far north part of Norway, a town called Tromso. Well, that's how we usually pronounce it in the okay. English world. Tromso, far north, north of the Arctic Circle, on the uh, on the where where the Atlantic Ocean and the Arctic Ocean meet, about there, and uh, a place surrounded by mountains. He grew up there. His father was a uh, owned the only pharmacy. Yeah. in the town and so his father was well known and they lived in the same building as the pharmacy and the building's still there in Tromso. and um so i think uh Zafa early on i'm not sure exactly when his interest started but he became a, a mountain climber yeah and he uh he actually climbed several peaks uh for the first time he was the first person to yeah climb several peaks and he was a lover of mountain climbing and he he was a lawyer he studied law and became an attorney in in Norway, but uh, ha he seems to have had an interest in philosophical thought and and literature early early on. Maybe even to his childhood, he he had sort of this looming um, philosophical discontentment in life. And uh, so, in the middle of his law career, he decided. That he didn't want to pursue it anymore. Yeah, and he just uh, went back to University of Oslo, studied literature, and he he uh, he wrote on the tragic the first version for his liter literature master's thesis. But okay, somebody yeah. I've heard people say it was 
Arnie Ness. I'm not yeah. exactly sure how you pronounce Arnie That's Ness. What I, I'm not sure either. I <laughs> probably Arn, but uh, anyways, we say Arnie Ness uh, convinced him to actually submit it for the PhD in philosophy. Yeah. Actually, there's there's a forward to the 1983 Norwegian edition of On the On the Tragic that um, a different person is mentioned, Frederick Posh or Posh, okay, who was an influence on Sapfa when he was at the University of Oslo, who convinced him to submit it, okay, for the PhD there. Anyways, you're asking about the Last Messiah, and and who who Sapfa was. So he's a mountain climber, philosopher. Yeah. He he wrote poetry. He he painted. He um, he wrote. Uh, pl some plays, short stories. And so he, he had a wide range of interests. He's most widely known as, as a philosopher. He did some philosophy teaching at, yeah. at the University of Oslo. Um, but most most of his time was spent writing and pursuing uh, philosophy as a, as, a, as a writing career rather than teaching career. Yeah, so that's who he is. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And, and did... His his law degree was that a PhD as well? Did he have several PhDs? I, I don't think it was a PHD. I think it was okay. you know, our, our their equivalent of our JD. You know, sure, sure, uh, yeah, whatever legal requirement normally mm -hmm. had to, to practice law. Yeah, so he was a practicing attorney for a while for a short period of time, yeah. really, and then he went back to school. Okay, yeah. and he also would you agree that uh, the Last Messiah and On the Tragic were the two works of his? only that covered like antenatal themes i'm not i haven't read everything that he that he's written that yeah. he wrote quite a bit yeah like in, in norway all of his works that are currently in print are published by the same publisher it's called pax pax yeah. forlag forlag's just publishing um and they have 10 books in print wow and okay. they're some of them are collections of shorter works some of them are one or two in the novel one one of them's a play there's a couple plays actually so i haven't read and he was writing you know into the into the 80s right at the end of his life yeah yeah so i haven't read all of it, it so i can't say for sure if there's not other antinatalist yeah. uh, discussions in his later work but no, it's okay i think those are probably the, definitely on the tragic is his most famous work yeah and, um, and the last messiah yeah the way the last messiah is the basically the only thing that's been translated into yeah. english until now um tells the story more of uh, uh the english-speaking world's exposure to stuff than the norwegian experience to him he he wrote a book i forget what the name of it is that has with another person that has a bunch of uh humorous stories and okay some kind of connected norwegian folklore and and stuff like that yeah. that i think is actually his most famous book in norway right from what i understand what i've been what i've been told by several people is like his his more pessimistic work is not really what's put forward in norway right like they don't it's not really the way they want to remember him yeah i'm wrong about that i'm not but. sure if there's an effort to to not put it out there but i think he's yeah, that it's 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 a lot like Schopenhauer. He wrote his World as Will and Representation, which is in his mind is his greatest work. Yeah, but it wasn't, and he made no money off of it. Yeah, and nobody read it. And then later in his life, he wrote shorter, kind of pop philosophy short yeah. works, and that made him a superstar while he was still alive. So I think um, in Safa's case, it's some of the shorter works and the humorous works and the works tied to Norwegian 
sense of life that yeah. made him more famous in Norway. But I, I, I will say this also that, yeah, I was in Oslo last year and I think it was last year. And um, there's a place not too far from Oslo called Asker, which is where he spent the later years of his life working. And there's a museum there, the Asker Museum, that has a little reconstruction of his yeah. study. So I went to that. Yeah, you might have. I think we have some picture pictures of it, of it yeah. in there. Yeah. And I went there and a, a young college age woman, you had to be let into, it was locked, the uh, little study. She had to let me in. And I asked her about Southland. And she told me, yeah, okay. there it is. She told me that um, I asked her basically how how popular is Sattva in yeah. Norway, and she told me, "Well, I went to university, and I've never I'd never heard of them wow. until I started working here." So that might give you a a sense of um, how popular. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's probably at the moment more popular in the English speaking world than he is in in Norway, which is strange. I have gotten that similar sense just based on what other people have told me too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think he, I think like Chiron, he's kind of seen this resurgence because he's been connected to the antinatalism. So right. now he's an antinatal superstar right. and has this new sort of lease on a, a legacy of sub sorts. Yeah. yeah, and. How did how did your interest in, in Zappa's work begin? Well, I I arrived at Zappa through Schopenhauer. Yeah. Not through antinatalism. I um like I said, I was interested in Kant for a long time. Mm -hmm. and I I did a little bit of I, I haven't done much publishing. I have one main article that I published uh based on my dissertation. And you know, I went to philosophy conferences and presented. And so I worked on Kant for a while, but I eventually became really, really interested in Schopenhauer. Um, and, you know, most people only know Schopenhauer through his short essay on the vanity of existence. Yeah. And they don't know anything else about him. All they know about him is that he was a pessimist. That's all they say. In fact, I had a, I had a, when I was teaching at Henry Ford, there was a, a bit of a little bit of a revival. Uh, I was teaching history of philosophy, history of modern philosophy class. And I would have a sort of a big section on Schopenhauer. I had a, a group of 10 or 12 students who got really, really interested in Schopenhauer. And so Interesting. That's all okay. they wanted to talk about. <laughs> and uh, one of them went on to a major university in Michigan uh, to study philosophy and went for the orientation and, and told the philosophy professors there that she wanted to study Schopenhauer. Uh-huh. And uh, the main, I guess, it goes uh, so well, huh? <laughs> well, they, they they shook their heads, and one of them says, "But he's such a pessimist," which is totally predictable. Right. That they would say that. She later pressed that professor, "Have you read Schopenhauer?" And the person had to admit, "No, I've never actually read it." So all all, all she knew was that uh, he was a pessimist. Right. But if you read Schopenhauer, like I, I spent several years reading closely every single thing that he wrote. Yeah. And he was a deep, deep thinker and he wrote on a ton of subjects. Yeah. And um, it's not the case now, but say late 19th century through to the mid 20th century, I think he was hugely influ influential on, on philosophical thinkers, especially oh, yeah. in Europe. And so I, I get the sense that Zapfa was, um, that's what led me to Zapfa was I'm of the opinion that Zapfa especially in On the Tragic, is continuing a discussion of the exact same themes that Schopenhauer was discussing in his uh, world as well and representation. 
yeah. that he's trying to further the same discussion. And so I became aware of that somehow, just poking around. And I, I also, um, I, I'm of the opinion that there's a big fork in the road in the history of philosophy with Hegel and Schopenhauer. Okay. They were contemporaries. And most people who know anything about Schopenhauer know that he hated Hegel. <laughs> yeah. And most people think it was because he was jealous. Hegel was a superstar. Mm -hmm. Maybe the first philosophical superstar. And um, Schopenhauer, you know, was working in obscurity. And so he had this envy and jealousy. And so he lashed out on Hegel. I think it's a real simplification of his opposition to Hegel. I think Ligotti talks a little bit about that, oh, actually. Yeah. yeah, I could be wrong, though. Could yeah. Be wrong. He, if you read everything Schopenhauer wrote, his criticisms of Hegel are, are quite complex and sophisticated. He, he's opposed to Hegel on two fronts. One of them is Hegel's use of terms in a, in a uh, extremely abstract way that becomes divorced from reality. Okay. And and the the concept formation we call it concept formation of Hegel. He's real critical of that. That these concept concepts are so abstract they become meaningless. And and then the other thing he's really opposed to was Hegel's view that history is actually headed in some direction. Okay. You know, Hegel is a very uh, in a lot of ways a very Christian thinker. There's a, mm. an eschatology to it that mm. you know, eventually we're going to get to uh, uh, freedom, the realization of of freedom and all this and this influences marx which mm -hmm. it's very present in marx yeah uh, you know this history headed in some direction schopenhauer the but no history is heading anywhere yeah if anything it's uh, circular which nietzsche picks up on later so yeah so i got interested in zafa because i was interested in hegel won the day and we have this uh, yeah. long you know from hegel we have Marx and we have, um, you know, everybody after that, we have Foucault, we have uh, Derrida, I mean, you can be traced back back to Hegel. And then the the Schopenhauer path sort of got cut off. I mean, the, the, the natural successor to Schopenhauer is Nietzsche. But I mean, Nietzsche says in his early writings that he wrote a, a, an essay called uh, Schopenhauer as educator. He says, mm -hmm. I learned everything I know from Schopenhauer. Yeah. He later was critical of, of Schopenhauer, but he's the natural successor. Yeah. to Schopenhauer, but Nietzsche is a world of his own. Yeah, 100%. And yeah. so I, I was really interested in sort of salvaging the Schopenhauer line. Yeah. And I think the best way to do that is to translate Safa into English, because I think yeah. Safa is, is really, other than Nietzsche, the natural successor to Schopenhauer. I'm of that view. Yeah, no, that that's, yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, do, do you... What are you, I mean, as somebody who who really has, you know, great respect for Schopenhauer, I mean, do you sort of see, some people have had like this real pushback to the idea of Schopenhauer being sort of like the godfather of of, of contemporary antinatalism. Okay. Do you sort of have that same feeling, like he should be credited for it more, or? I know there's a couple quotes from Schopenhauer that sound very antinatalist. Yeah. But um, I... I don't know. Yeah, it's one of my favorite things to do is to trace the emergence of an idea in the history of yeah. philosophy and try to look yeah. at the very first time it popped, mm -hmm. popped mm -hmm. into existence. And anyway, I mean, the antinatalist thought goes all the way back, probably to Salinas. Uh, I see it in Sophocles, this, this mm -hmm. quote about yeah. it's better to 
the, the, the number one thing is to have never been born. The second yeah. best is to die quickly. Yep. That you was know, a passages quote of, like that of, of Selena, wisdom yeah. of Salinas. Yeah. yeah. And then Nietzsche quotes that too. Mm -hmm. And so oh, yeah. it's fun to follow those. And I think Schopenhauer would legitimately appear on that, that map or that yeah. constellation of thinking. Yeah. But I, I, he doesn't devote much time to it, I don't think. No, and I don't suspect he would have been too hot on extinctionism. Yeah, I, I don't think he would have. But then again, a lot of antinatalists aren't too hot on extinctionism. <laughs> so it's, it, I mean, it's that's always kind of a, a complicated subject no matter where people fall. But yeah, so I, but came, yeah. I came to Safa through through Schopenhauer. I mean, so the, my, what I was looking for in Safa was probably quite different than what an antinatalist who was trying to, you know, an English-speaking antinatalist trying to read yeah. the Norwegian. They'd probably be looking for something quite different, although there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of the, the foundations of antinatalism are, are present in other thoughts. Sure. Schopenhauer definitely championed. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you for your insight into that. I mean, I well, I think, you know, many would say, and you started in the best place possible, honestly. I mean, many consider leaving Schopenhauer aside for a second, but I mean, Zap, Zap is considered by many to be the best place to begin one's process of, of going, even more than Benatar, mm -hmm. just because it's such a, I, I mean, and I, I, I tend, I tend to agree. I mean, but do you consider yourself a, um, a, a Zap uh, scholar in a wider sense? Meaning, have you done a great deal of research into his other works and, and, and about his life? I mean, we've spoken a little bit about right. this already, but. Well, I'm definitely not an expert on his life. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, my, my interest in a philosopher's, the details of a philosopher's life is pretty, becomes pretty limited. I'm, I'm mostly interested in what they said. Yeah. If they said something that I think is, is worthy to be sort of in the, the canon of the history of philosophy, which I definitely think on the tragic is, but I, I, I find, I find Safa's life interesting, yeah. but I don't know nearly as much uh, about it as uh, there are other people out there uh, who, who know, who are just a wealth of information. They seem to know everything about him. Yeah. So I w I'm definitely not an expert on, on his life. And then his, his thought, his writings, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert on all, you know, his entire yeah. collection of writings because I haven't, I haven't read them all. Um, but when it comes to on the tragic in the English speaking world, I mean, it has to be that I know the book better than anybody else in the English speaking who doesn't also know how to read Norwegian. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I, I, in in one sense, I think I know in in for English speakers, I know more. I know the book better than anybody. I think by now I've read it about seven or eight times. Wow. I'm still <laughs> processing most of most of what's in there, but yeah. So, if I'm an expert on stuff at all, it's only in that respect. No, absolutely. Abs abs well, I mean, but it's a giant respect. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a respect. It's, yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's a respect, but it's a giant respect for sure. Um, I, I we, Again, we talked a little bit about this already, but I was curious if you had any insight into how Zapfa is perceived in his home country today, particularly how his antinatalism is received or perhaps ignored, as the case may be. From what I understand, I mean, he is something of a national treasure sure. in, in Norway. Um, but that there's... I've heard anyway that there's some degree of fear surrounding his pessimism and antinatalism. Would you say that that's true? And if so, do you believe that that has contributed to on the tragic not making it into the English language until now? 
Yeah, I think there's, uh, like I said before, the I think he's beginning to be forgotten in Norway. Yeah. There, there are, you know, like there's a statue in Tromso of him. Yes. And I think you're right that he is a national treasure, but I think the younger generation, most of them probably don't actually know who he is. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's sort of gone full circle where his antinatalist interest in the English-speaking world and, and beyond the English-speaking world has come full circle back to Norway and there are people in Norway influenced by that movement yeah and they sort of discover their own their own heritage of, yeah yeah it, within their own heritage so yeah. that's the sense yeah. that I have now I've never gotten the sense that Sapfa is too pessimistic or too dark a thinker for Norwegians uh, yeah I, I don't think Norwegians and Danes uh, care that much about they're they're very they're very dark thinkers in general. I don't know if you watch much uh, Danish and Norwegian. Uh, I have film and, and yeah. TV. It's they, pretty they're, dark. They are not afraid to to dig around in, in really dark yeah. uh, subjects. So I don't think that they're hesitant. Well, they're music reason. Norwegian black metal. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they birth the black metal. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think they're afraid of Sattva. Although I think I think Scandinavian people are are busy. They they have a real uh, you know get to work attitude and yeah. and I think they they get jobs that keep them busy and and they have families and they devote themselves entirely to it so I, I, they're probably not thinking a lot about these wider topics mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, that's fair enough I only know two Norwegian antinatalists I think yeah. but but yeah but it's 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 always just interesting yeah. you know where where it's as a movement it's taking hold or not yeah I also you, say say this sorry um no not at all at some point, I think it's in the, his preface to On the Tragic, Sapfa says that philosophy has never been at home in Norway. And I'm not exactly sure what he means by that. Okay. But he seems to be suggesting that Norwegian culture has never been particularly philosophical, which hmm. I find that surprising, especially yeah. since Denmark, I perceive as a, a very philosophical country, and mm -hmm. they used to be one kingdom. They used to be one country, Yeah, Norway and Denmark. Yeah. And I mean, we think about Kierkegaard in, in Denmark. Exactly. So yeah. I, I think of the Danes as very philosophical. I'm surprised that he said that philosophy is not at home in, in Norway. But... Perhaps that was a bit of a jab. Yeah, at could be. Ex the existent Norwegian philosophy. Yeah, I don't know. so maybe, maybe that has something to do with um, a lack of interest, if there is a lack of interest in no, thank you for your insight into all of that. That's yeah, that's really. I mean, through the works of Thomas Ligotti and others, Zappa's "The Last Messiah" has be has, you know I think is how one of the ways it's become so well. He's become so well known to antinatalists. Mm -hmm. But what other works by Zappa are not currently in English that you, you would like to see translated? I know he wrote apparently a textbook with Arne Ness that like tore the two of them apart from what I understand. Um, huh. and, but in any case, I mean, and would you have any interest in being the translator for those works? In the yeah. Future? So there, there are, I mentioned that the, the Norwegian publisher of um, Safa has 10 books, yeah. nine uh, other than on the tragic. And yes, I'm very interested in, in some of them. I've, I've only right. read maybe two or three others and i actually started translating one of them he wrote a play yeah i'm really curious about that he wrote a couple plays actually yeah the, the one that i was particularly interested in was uh it was a story about a sort of a, a rewriting of the jesus narrative okay 
And it's pretty shocking because he, he, and I think he wrote it shortly after on the tragic was published. I think it was published in 1951 on the tragic 1941. Yeah. But um, he, things he've said suggest that it's sort of a dramatic uh, representation of what's going on in, on the tragic. Oh, wow. So okay. basically you have the figure of Jesus as the ultimate quintessential tragic okay. figure. He, he calls Jesus. He also wrote a biography of Jesus that is just sort of straight nonfiction. But um, wow, I had no idea. Yeah, he calls Jesus a psychopath. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so Zappa wrote this uh, play about Jesus. It's called Infortapta um, Zone, which is it's usually translated the prodigal son. I'm not so sure yeah. that's the right translation. It might be the lost son, but basically, Jesus is presented as this uh, sort of um, person who has. Uh, exceptional abilities in certain areas it's a bit of a genius maybe a major genius but the emergence of that genius in him is is connected to psychopathic uh, tendencies i want this play <laughs> <laughs> i'm about two-thirds of the way through uh first translation of it it's fascinating and and it has uh you know what whatever you think about the the historical um veracity of, of of the gospel stories he, mm -hmm. he he addresses this notion that jesus was born of a virgin he he i don't know how much of this is playful how much he, of it he thinks is actually maybe correct but in the play uh the the father of jesus is actually king herod oh really yeah and wow. so uh you know king herod drama comes to town and seduces mary and uh uh, and then he, so this is con Jesus' constant claim of being the king, the rightful king is actually tied to. He's the prince. His awareness of right. eventually Herod being his father. It's it, it's kind of ridiculous, but it's a fun read. Yeah. But uh, I think that it's Zappa trying to present a literary figure who exemplifies the, uh, what he, the way he formulates the tragic in on the tragic so i've been working on that and i'm very interested in it that's exciting like i said he also wrote a, a, a non-fiction biography of jesus i'm interested in that too because it's probably some of the same yeah same thought and um there's a lot of short writings by him that i'm very interested in and i started to translate a few of them um he wrote a he wrote a uh I guess it's a bit of a textbook. I don't know if this is the one you're referring to, but it's uh, on logic. It's basically, uh, I think he put it together when he was teaching. I think that logic might be it. At yeah. the University of Oslo. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, but I don't know how much. There's a lot of resources. There are a lot of resources out there on, um, you know, teaching logic to beginners. Yeah. And I don't know how important that would be might be kind of outdated yeah but a, but a historical document nonetheless yeah, i'm interested in it. i started yeah. translating it but uh yeah there so i'm working on um several fronts that's awesome right now tra translating other sapha stuff and yeah yeah so we'll see where that goes and despite maybe no antinatalism in those do you i mean as we were sort of discussing before do you think that that was at all in conversation with sort of his influence from Kierkegaard and his sort of Jesus obsessions. I I suspect that Kierkegaard did have a significant influence on him just because of the world he lived in. Yeah. I think you know a Danish a major Danish philosopher would have had an impact on yeah, him naturally. Sure. 
I'm not, to be honest with you, I'm not a huge, I'm, I say I'm not a huge fan of Kierkegaard. I've always found Kierkegaard difficult mm -hmm. to read. Um, I don't know if it's the translations or if just his thought. Kierkegaard's another big opponent of Hegel, uh -huh. contemporary and opponent. Yeah. And even though he's a huge opponent of Hegel, I think a lot of the things that I find undesirable in Hegel are present in Kierkegaard too, which is interesting. This, this wild, unrestricted, abstract use of concepts. Yeah. You know, the, the concept form, formation is is uh, just completely divorced to any accountability <laughs> of any kind. And interesting. So I've always had a hard time reading Kierkegaard. So I, I don't. Yeah. I don't know him that well, but. Safa does mention him yeah. a couple times in On the Tragic. And I think he's probably well-versed in his thought. Without without question. Yeah. I know very little Kierkegaard, I have to say. It's really only it's only only Kierkegaard's. I think it's his it comes from his diaries, really, his musings that are very Christian anti-natalist. Yeah. You know, when he sort of railed against the Danish church for right. being too much of oh, he was against marriage and all of yeah. yeah, he thought he thought that the church had sort of lost its antenatal yeah. way, yeah. basically. Yeah, I know as much probably about his life as I do his philosophy. I know fear and trembling fairly well, and okay, his yeah. whole Abraham Isaac argument, things like that. But yeah, I just always found him difficult to 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 glean for sure a lot of useful stuff. But you know, I, I'm not saying it's not there. I just yeah. have that difficulty with it. Oh. Yeah, no, thank you. There's a kind of Zapfa fan club on the internet with people like Norwegian antinatalist and Zapfa expert uh, Andreas Moss, um, who even used to run a website called Planet Zapfa, and Tim Ozekis. Hey, Tim. Hey, Andreas. Uh, who have been in touch? Have you been in touch with any of these modern Zapfans? I have been in touch with both uh, Tim and Andreas. Andreas. Um, yeah. And. Yeah, that's how you and I mm -hmm. came together. Mm -hmm. uh, Tim, who's in Melbourne, Australia, somehow got word that uh, I had completed this translation, even though I had told virtually nobody. Um, <laughs> yeah, doesn't surprise me, though. <laughs> he got word that I had completed this translation, emailed me about it with a lot of questions, and uh, we we started a, a email exchange. And yeah, I've talked to him at length about a lot of different topics. And then... Um, he also put me in touch with Andreas, who's yeah. in, who's in Norway and actually lives and I believe grew up in Tromso, the same town Safa's from. Walks by Safa's house on a regular basis, which is pretty cool. Yeah, um, I've had extended conversations with him by email as well. So both of them, yes, and it's been it's been great. And then Tim told me uh, early on that. Uh, about you and this podcast, mm -hmm. this would be a great place for you to inter be interviewed and talk about the translation and things like that. Put us in touch, mm -hmm. which I don't know how much of this you want me to tell. You can cut it. No, off. go ahead. Cut yeah, it no, it's off. fine. Yeah, so I, I said, great. That sounds great. Uh, where's Amanda located? He said, Chicago. <laughs> I said, and lo and behold, hey, wait yeah. a minute. I live in Chicago. And then you and I started talking. And yeah, I was picturing, you know, hopping on the train and going to another neighborhood. That's exa exactly my, my thoughts as well. Yeah. And it said, uh, we started talking and I said, well, where are you located? And it turns out your building is two blocks away from my building. Yeah. I just, I still can't get over that. I mean, proving yeah. the world is a very small place after all. So a guy, a Zappa guy in Australia puts us together. We live two blocks apart. So <laughs> yeah. And then on top of that, we ran into each other on the street. We probably... As I've said to you several times, we probably run into, into each other on the street yeah. like many times over the years. I watched uh, a couple episodes of your so podcast funny. once I 
had a face walking down the street. Yeah. I saw you. <laughs> Wait a minute. You're Amanda, aren't you? So I sure am. Yes, that worked out greatly. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I know the two of them and I kind of wish I had known them before. Yeah. Because they're a lot, they, they are a wealth of information and they have tons of resources. Incredible. I think Andreas has been working on a, a documentary. So mm -hmm. he, he knows everything about his uh, biography. Tim knows tons of stuff. So yeah, I wish I'd known them ahead of time. They are both uh, like uh, authorities yeah. on the subject um, in, in, in an incredible way. So yeah, so I mean, thank you to to Tim for yes, thank you. You know, because I, I I received a message on on WhatsApp just like, hey, can you can you interview Ryan? I'm like, yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, so thank you, uh, Tim, for 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 making this uh, all 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 happen. Um, and it's just it, it really is incredible the way it all worked out. Um, but yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, um, I. I, I really do we'll talk more about this this later too, but I, I do think it's really amazing the ways, especially given what we've already said about maybe him maybe Zappos sort of being for, forgotten a bit in his own country, the ways that he's sort of taking on this new second yeah. life now that antinatalism yeah, is even becoming in Norway, yeah. even in Norway, yeah, and, and all over the world. Um so now I'd I'd love to talk a little bit about the last Messiah before sure. we get really heavily into um on the tragic. Um, so before we get to the real fireworks of our discussion today, um, yeah, I mean, The Last Messiah is is definitely Zappa's most well-known work in English, as as we've said, probably the only piece of Zappa's writing that's been available yeah, that's in been English that's been published, yeah, outside of like fan translations and that kind of thing. Um, if you wouldn't mind, again, for the for those in our audience who may not have ever read The Last Messiah, um, you know, what is it and what are your thoughts on on the piece? Yeah, well, the, so the last Messiah is a is a short essay. I think it's about ten pages, eight, ten pages, yeah. something like that. And um, it, it's the the essay starts out very po poetic with a story about a, a guy. It sounds a bit uh, prehistoric. Yeah, but uh, who knows when the time frame's supposed to be? But a guy who goes out to hunt. I think his wife sends him out to hunt. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know he's there under the starry sky, and he's by the watering hole, and. Uh, he he starts to to experience sort of um he has an experience of the suffering of all yeah beings basically and uh i think he comes home empty-handed he ends up back at the watering hole later and uh so he 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 doesn't hunt he abandons hunting he just sort of sits there in the suffering i think and then maybe some sort of empathy yeah and then eventually they find him dead by the watering hole which always it doesn't say how he died but it i i assume the way the story is set up that it was suicide that's my yeah. my assumption um there's no other indication of some other way that he could have died and then zafa from that story builds sort of an an argument uh he, he basically asks the question you know if this is if this is this the cosmic situation of human beings why why aren't all human beings abandoning life, committing suicide, checking out, something like that. Yeah. And then he and then he tells us, he gives us these four different uh, sort of mechanisms that human beings in general tend to employ to sort of keep the keep the the reality of the cosmic situation at bay. There's the isolation, anchoring, distraction, and uh, sublimation, mm -hmm. the Freudian term. Mm -hmm. And he he basically builds a, a case that this is he, the reason why human beings are not don't seem to be particularly upset about their cosmic situation is because of these 
these yeah. uh, mechanisms have psychological mechanisms mechanisms have been employed to to sort of keep it at bay and yeah so yeah that's basically the gist of, of yeah. the essay and those by the way those four mechanisms are present in on the tragic yeah except in much greater detail mm -hmm. and not just those four mechanisms but additional mechanisms he calls them solutions there's real solutions and pseudo solutions okay and um yeah there's there's myriad of these various attempts that humans make to keep the cosmic situation at bay both real and pseudo more pseudo than real it's very freudian i mean this this sounds a lot like freud yeah and uh so yeah i think freud had a huge influence interesting i didn't realize that he references okay. him a couple times and and at one point he, you know freud's still alive at the time when right he was writing this and he he says something about freud's wonderful discoveries and so mm. i think he was sort of in the throes of of freud's theories being presented to the world for the first time yeah some of them were much earlier but um yeah so that that's that's the last messiah and i will say this i don't know if you're going to ask it but um so i think the last messiah was published in 1933 yeah uh my understanding and we have we have a quote connected to this we can look at later is that Zapfa began working on the tra on on the tragic 11 years prior to its publication so that would oh okay that would put us at 1930 okay so we can we can infer from that that he worked on on the tragic and the last messiah at the same time okay so i didn't realize that yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. so that that's why the there is overlap, a lot of overlap. Yeah. I think The Last Messiah is a, like a truncated, smaller, more concise version of some of the arguments in On the Tragedy. And it, 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 I mean, in my opinion, anyway, it is really a masterpiece. I mean, oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's just a beautiful piece of work. I yeah. think, I think it is still to this day one of the finest sort of contemplations of antinatalism, I think extinctionism, pessimism, just the place. Just sentientism too. Yeah, I, I would put I, it up there with Schopenhauer's "On the Vanity of Existence," which people love to quote, and it's mm -hmm. a fun read, even yeah. though it's extremely dark. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, the Last Messiah is sort of the new "On the Vanity of Existence." Yeah, I except with more poetic and uh, uh, elements to it. I mean, Schopenhauer is an amazing writer. Yeah, Sapa just maybe plays more with uh, you know fictional elements. Yeah, for sure. I, I also, I mean, this is just my opinion. I think there's probably going to be a lot of disagreement about this, but I also think it was incredibly ahead of its time as oh, yeah. as, a, as an antinatalist work too, because I mean, th there's all kinds of disagreements about its its sentiocentrism, its sort of promortalism, its extinctionism, but it 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 does bring up all of these questions. It, it brings up these questions that are very a part of really like the cutting edge of what contemporary oh, yeah. antinatalism is today and 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 a lot of works wouldn't do that right. for a long time afterwards yeah um, i'm of the opinion so it's very that fresh that's what makes a, a philosophical work great is yeah. that people are arguing about what it actually means it, yeah i 100 if you just I have feel some, same way. some philosophical work that says okay this is the way it is abc boom yeah. we're done everybody says okay that's all it means if you're not arguing about what it even means, then I would say it's not particularly deep. Well, then we know. got it all solved. There's nothing to talk about. Yeah, I'm about, still right? trying to figure out what Plato, right. Plato meant. And, yeah. Um, yeah, and I worked on a lot for a long time. Kant scholars are arguing still about oh, what yeah. the categorical imperative even means, what it what it implies. So yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And I've been told, though I do think it's probably wrong, The Last Messiah is not included in On the Tragic, is it? No. Okay, no. okay. All right. It is, it is care not that then. part of the book, but was written at the same time. The same so time. that yeah. he's thinking about the same topics at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. But they weren't they were not published together. The the current the Norwegian version of it is published in a collection of shorter works. I see. Okay. And I mean, how did it come to be the only piece of Zapfa that we have in English before before you came along? That's a great question. I'm not exactly sure. That there's you know, at the very end of On the Tragic, there's a summary. Okay. And Zapfa published it in English yeah. from the start. Really? I, I'm not sure if he, I suspect that he himself translated it. He does seem to have a, a command of English to a degree. Huh. Okay. Um, I mean, he, he quotes Bertrand Russell in English. He uses a lot of English terminology in On the Tragic. So I think he could probably, he probably had at least a basic re, uh, understanding of English, maybe of an advanced one. I don't actually know. But anyways, I, this summary, I don't think it's particularly helpful. Like, I, I, okay. I don't read it and say, yeah, that definitely captures the entire book. Um, and, you know, a lot of the terminology in that English summary is a bit different from the terminology he uses in the book. So I'm not sure when it was written. Um, yeah, so that's been in English from the beginning. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if anybody really read it. Uh, yeah, I don't know how. I think Tim and Andreas might know how. I'll have to ask. <laughs> I know there was an, you know, the, the translation of Last Messiah that I first came in contact with, I, which I think is the way most English speakers did, was in published in Philosophy Now magazine. Yeah, that's how I it's, know of um, it. The ten, we probably would say Ten Genis. I think it's more like Ten Genis. Okay. Um, yeah. That was in 2004, I think. I believe so. But there's an yeah. earlier English translation. Yeah, there were three, yeah. apparently. So well, that I, brings I us... don't know if the earlier one, which was 93 or 4 or something like that. I unfortunately didn't write down the dates. I should have. But I, but there's three translations. So there's yeah. the, and I, this name and Reed. Yeah, something like Cavalloy and uh, Reed. I think Reed is a Brit. And then Rael. Cavalloy is a, a Norwegian or Dane, I think. Mm. And then Real, I think Real, Treen Real is a, philosophy professor in ireland i believe okay and i'm not sure, sure if she's from ireland treen sounds a bit irish um or if she's actually danish or norwegian but uh yeah i came across the tenyen it's uh, translation first yeah and that seems to be the one that exploded yeah because that's that's the one that's available free to, i mean i think several of them are actually are online think, but that's i think that philosophy now magazine had a reach that allowed yeah. it to to be spread far and wide well again we've we're getting into a bunch of little topics that we've we've skirted already but i i think it's they're important to kind of go back over i mean within sure. the last messiah there is a real nod to human extinction mm -hmm. um know thyself be infertile and let the earth be silent after mm -hmm. ye i mean that is just such an incredible line passage, yeah. yeah and just one of the one of the most famous lines from the from the story as you might be aware extinction is one of those subjects in antinatalism that that antinatalists are extremely divided over um, some take like more of a conditional approach, 
Others just ignore the subject entirely. Um, and others are extremely pro-extinctionist. So my question is, where do you think Zapfa would have stood on the question of, of extinction? Do you think he would have considered himself a pro-extinctionist? Um, I think I find it hard to believe that he would be a, a, a strong pro-extinctionist. Okay. I think, I mean, he doesn't seem to really be issuing some sort of call for some ethical program to bring it about, at least in my reading. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, you know, he talks quite a bit about the extinction of various species, and at least in the animal kingdom, uh, they just come about automatically. Yeah. Like he he gives this illustration, which is also in The Last Messiah of this, I translate it, the Irish giant deer, because I think that's one of its yes. main names. Sometimes it's called an elk. Mm -hmm. uh, that supposedly evolved to have such giant antlers that they, was, they were too big and heavy. It would get caught yeah. up in thickets, bow its head down, required too much calcium um, productions, and so eventually it became extinct. Uh, it's not exactly clear if he's correct that that's what happened. I think it's partly speculation. I don't know if... Uh, a zoologist or a biologist. Would <laughs> that's a good that, point. Yeah, that's, I don't know. That's definitely how that thing became extinct. It's possible, but uh, it's there, a, might, there it, might be as an image, though, as right. a as a as a device. It's I mean, great. It's, it's great as a device, and in, yeah. in, in on the tragic, it gives us a couple other devices that might actually work better. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, but so I think extinction is present in his discussions. Yeah. Of of evolution and of evolutionary psychology. And I, if you were to ask him, do you think that the human species is going to become extinct because of its nature? Or convictions or... Yeah, yeah. something about its makeup yeah. or the way it, it, it's evolved to be, I think he, he might say yes. Because he does, yeah. he does seem to say, claim at least tentatively that the human species is a tragic... Yeah, species and a, a tragic species is one whose downfall occurs and possibly extinction with that. So that deer, that that Irish giant deer, is a tragic species. Right, it, its greatness led to its downfall. It, the splendor of its antlers, the the the, I mean, it could it could defeat any enemy just by flipping it over with its giant antlers. And so I think it it's the greatness of that species that led to the downfall of that species. And he's sort of using oh, that as an analogy okay. for humans. Humans have some greatness in a sense, but it's likely to lead to the human's downfall as a species. Does that mean extinction? I don't know. I don't see him calling for some sort of ethical program to intentionally bring it about. Yeah, I mean, well, he might not be bothered by it. Mm -hmm. but that's that's more the sense I get. Actually, yeah. it's more a matter of he wouldn't be bothered by it. But and I want to jump on that subject again just in a second. But just going back to the deer, do you think that he was more making a comment on like like unintelligent design that like you know that that this deer has been like like this maj majestic beautiful creature has been you know that no obviously no god had a hand in creating it because it's it's got this flaw that you know right. it's it's its greatest strength is what what's breaking its neck kind of thing right, right. Do, do you think there was any flavor of that in in there 
Well, they, you know, Safa's discussion of God and and it is very interesting, and it factors prominently in on the tragic. And you know, he even had or the you know, not just the Christian God, but other gods, the Greek gods, and so on. Yeah, he does say at one point in the book that um, <laughs> talking about the story of Zeus. I don't know this story particularly well in Greek mythology, but mm -hmm. uh, maybe the Fates. Uh, giving Zeus wine at some point, and he he makes the claim that nobody has really pursued the idea that the uni uh, the universe might be under the control of uh, <laughs> gods who are blind drunk at the wheel. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, I've heard this. I've heard this. Yeah. yeah. So um, I don't think he he I don't think he would be in in favor of a view that thinks the universe is just completely chaotic and unordered. Mm -hmm. But that the order is uh, definitely out of whack. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. there are disproportions between uh, justice and, ex and and obligations. Okay. There are disproportions between ability and need. Um, yeah. The the evolution of living species is sort of out of control. It, yes. Yeah. It, you know, as if uh, drunk gods were interesting controlling. No, that's 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 a fascinating answer. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I mean, going back to the extinctionism a little bit, I just I and I'm misplacing the gentleman's name, but and and you brought him up earlier. Um, he's a, a Zap scholar who was a guest on another podcast called the Hermetics Podcast. Oh, is it a Rua Fremstadal? Yes, Rua? yes, and and I really loved a lot of what he had to say about Zap uh, in that in that um, uh, that essay. Well, his 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 essays and also that interview. Yeah. But he talks about how during the Cold War. Zappa was very in favor of NATO and he sort of defended the use of nuclear weapons. And Tim actually provided, I had did, couldn't find the, the the exact quote, but Zappa apparently said and is quoted in a book by this person. I don't know who wrote the book. It's called I Chose I Choose Truth. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. This is I yes. And it was I choose truth. It was a book from nineteen eighty three. I'm sorry I don't have all of the details, but it was on page sixty. And at least a Google translation of that comes out to for me an uninhabited island is no tragedy nor a globe which is free from the feverish fungus of life, e.g. the moon. Which is this thing is like such an amazing quote. Yeah. So an island where is it again? Yeah. For me a desert island is no tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this goes back to what I said before about extinction. I think um, what I said, Zafa, probably wouldn't be bothered by it. He didn't sound particularly bothered, does he? No. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, I, I know in his later life, I don't know when that happened, 1983. That's uh, when the book is from anyway. I yeah. don't know if that's, you know. I know later in his life, Zafa spent a lot of his time writing about the environment. Yes. Preservation, conservation of wilderness areas and mountains and things like that. Uh, I haven't read much of that, but yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't see him trying to issue a, an ethical program toward devoted towards, I don't either, but I don't think he'd no. be particularly bothered by it. And, but it did surprise me yeah. that just that, that, you know, because conversations around nuclear weapons, red button kind of stuff, more of the negative utilitarian right. stuff. That's like, I think there's a certain amount of protectionism against some of the older, like 
pre Benatari and antinatalists of like, well, they don't, they never, they never went near any of that kind of stuff. Right. So it just surprises me that that's yeah. something he said. <laughs> you know, yeah. like and it's his position on NATO is interesting. Well, yeah. first of all, you got to put him in context. He lives in Norway, which has, shares a border with Russia, and shares, yeah, 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 shares a lot of um, uh, commercial interests with Russia, and. He also had to put in the context of the Cold War. Yeah. Russia, a very different entity then than it is now. Yeah, and yeah for sure. So, but he, here, here's a wild thought. You know, we talked about the, the red button solution. If, you you know, your anti-natalism, activism, um, if the most effective way to bring about the extinction of the human race is a nuclear holocaust, then an anti-natalist should immediately devote all their time and energy to, to bringing about a... a a nuclear holocaust. Well, maybe that's what's going on in NATO now. Well, <laughs> they sure they sure aren't doing a very good job of no. of restraining it. So maybe there's a bunch of anti-natalists and they're covertly uh, trying to stir up. Uh... <laughs> if that were the case, I, I would I would hope that they'd be doing a better job of alleviating <laughs> some suffering. At the same time, they've got this this plan. Yeah, I don't I don't think that's what's going on. But um, wouldn't that be wild? But that would be kind of wild. Yes, it, would, yes, it certainly would. Um, That'd be a good movie. Well, I you know I I hope I really do hope that antinatalism can achieve its goals through great arguments. I've still I'm Rather. still haven't given up on you know covert. Uh, covert yeah, I mean I, I you know. As cool as antinatalist ninjas might be, I uh, yeah, I, great arguments are would much would, would be much better. Um, and then and then in, infusing art with absolute the, the spirit of those arguments. Yeah, big big. That's big where the part. propagation can really exactly happen. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I think I I always think that antinatalism is this sort of threefold thing. It's a philosophical position. It's a growing social movement, but it's also a little bit of an art movement. Yeah. And that plays into both big time. Um, and I'm a, I'm a big proponent. And the of, spread of social was art always happens through art. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's been some incredible art already. Well, cool. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll well, I know. You I know. I know a few things. Yeah. Do you? Well, I know that you. I think you were going to ask me about True Detective, which is a oh yeah a great example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll definitely <laughs> touch on that in a little bit. Do you just finishing off our our discussion of well for now anyway of the of red buttons and all that kind of stuff do you think that zappa was a negative utilitarian because i the consensus on this is very divided amongst others um you mean negative utilitarian in the sense of trying to actively bring about uh... yeah i mean it gets tricky i mean it's, it's for, you know I, I have another well maybe i should ask this question first i mean there was a sort of um, on the Hermetics podcast, uh, Rove Fenstall. Yeah. Again, you know, so he asked uh, the 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 host of that podcast asked him, um, and maybe we've covered enough of this already. I don't know, but uh, but it's it, it's interesting nonetheless. I mean, he asks uh, Rove, you know, do you think there's a practical Zapfian morality? Do you think that Zapfa saw his ethical standards as something that we should try to actualize? Um, yeah, do you know what his answer was? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know why, but I didn't actually write it down. So, um, but know, I mean, as somebody who's interested in anti-Nazi activism, I, I just sort of wonder. Yeah, it's a, to it's what a extent very interesting question. His I, mind went there. Um, I know uh, Rua Fremsedal. When I started translating on the tragic, I knew I was going to run into some very difficult passages. Yeah, that I would need some help from a, a native Norwegian, preferably somebody who had a lot of philosophical knowledge and knowledge of Zappa. 
And so Rua Fremsedal is one of those people that yeah. I, I solicited to help me. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. And the, the other one is Jürgen Hova, who's a yeah. South Coast scholar. And both of them um, helped me immensely. I would, you know, if I ran across a really difficult passage, I would shoot them an email and they would try to help me. They're very busy people, but yeah. they, they helped me. They wrote uh, endorsements for the back of the Oh, that's the, fabulous. Two I'm ones. glad to know that. Yeah. But yeah, I know I know Rua Fremsedal works in in ethics and in Kant and yeah. uh, but he's also written on Sapfa. I I'd be interested to hear what his answer is. I my my sense of on the tragic is that Sapfa's not giving us sort of a new ethical um theory or or prescription yeah per se. If you read you see, in a lot of ways, I think he's a he's kind of a traditionalist. There's a long yeah. section of on the tragic where he talks about criminal law. Mm -hmm. He's trying to he's trying to establish a concept of guilt or blame. Okay, okay. And uh, it's it, his concept of guilt in the book is is amazing, and will be talked about quite a bit eventually, I believe, in the world. And so he he looks at traditional criminal law and and hit contemporary to him norwegian criminal law he's also a lawyer so he's yeah well he's forgetting about that law background yeah yeah and it, he sounds very traditional he's like well let's look at what the legal tradition yeah philosophy of law has said about the concept of, of um accountability and blame and guilt and and he you know when he talks about morality he talks about it in pretty traditional terms either utilitarian or Kantian framework, even a virtue framework quite a bit. Interesting. And I don't see any sort of new ethical theory he's trying to issue. Yeah. It, it reminds me a little bit of, I, I get the sense from Zappa that he's he, he's not even come to any firm conclusions, that he's yeah. just trying to contribute to a conversation that's ongoing and will continue after him. He's just trying to introduce new elements to the conversation or improve the focus of it. And yeah, so it reminds me a little bit of, of Schopenhauer because Schopenhauer Schopenhauer is often credited for giving a new moral prescription, which is yeah, which is uh, sort of this Buddhist uh, denial of the will, be, you know, shut down will completely, and then you become a compassionate person. I am, I cannot find that anywhere. There's only one place in, in all of Schopenhauer's writings where he calls that phenomenon an ideal. Hmm. He doesn't seem to be saying, hey, everybody out there, you should all deny the will and become peaceful and yeah. compassionate. I think he's saying this is a phenomenon that happens. Sometimes, pe sometimes people's suffering or knowledge brings them to a point where they cease to will. Yeah, and, and have this strange compassion emerge from their lives. It's just a phenomenon that happens. Right, right. I, I, I can't really find a strong claim that he thinks you should pursue it. Yeah. Is that... And I, I think the same maybe is true of Sattva. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure that he's saying, hey, everybody out there, I don't want to have children and you shouldn't either. Yeah. 
Because I don't get a strong sense of that. No, I, I mean, based on everything you've told me, I, I don't, I don't either. I mean, it's just, it's just really fascinating to think about what he would think about antinatalism trying to develop into a social movement. What he right. would think about, you know, there are some like proto NGOs now, like Stop Having Kids, who put up billboards, right. you know, about this kind of stuff. And but give, but well, the one thing it does make me think about, you know, because I, I keep for, again, I keep forgetting about his law background. Yeah, is what he would have thought about things like wrong, wrongful life cases. You know, trying to create legal precedent around issues of procreation. I mean, there's there was a um, a friend of mine uh, who became incredibly famous um, in, in India. His name is uh, Raphael Samuel. And he mm -hmm. actually didn't do it. He didn't go through with it. But he threatened to sue his parents for, yeah. for uh, you know, not getting his consent to bring That's him into life. Fun. And it became this incredible international sensation is it a criminal suit or a, a civil suit i think it was a civil suit <laughs> so, but uh but uh yeah maybe i'm not i'm not sure honestly but um no, it wasn't it definitely wasn't a criminal suit but uh but he didn't go through with it but i wonder what zap would have thought of something like that i'm sure he would have found it entertaining i'm sure he, yeah i'm sure he, he would have also had a lot of uh legal thoughts about it because yeah. his his legal acumen in in the section in on tragic about criminal law is incredible he has such a great grasp of yeah. not only the history of criminal law and how how different forms of it came about, but also the contemporary situation it finds its in itself in, in the directions it's developing in and so on. I, I kind of had this little beginning of a story in my mind now of like a Raphael Samuel goes through the suit and Zappa is his lawyer, you know, <laughs> like it would be amazing. <laughs> I could see, you know, there's a there's a wide range of audiences for on the tragic and yeah. uh, people who work in philosophy of law and criminal law. That's one of the audiences I could see people yeah. who work in philosophy of law discussing what he says in there about it. Wow, that's divorced I, from the rest of the book. I never would have would have considered that, but that's that's amazing. Yeah. I hope well, to see that quite a long section. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay, that, that's amazing. Okay, I have one more question about about uh, the Last Messiah, and then I mean, there's so much to talk about in the Last sure. Messiah. I know I've kind of whittled it down to almost nothing, but we certainly, you know, on the tragic is quite the beast. So we'll yeah. get to that in a second. But I, I definitely wanted to touch on um, a, a point of that's you know sort of a. a a, a, a bit of a, a passionate subject for me is that another point that antinatalists are incredibly divided on is the place of animals within antinatalism. Some antinatalists are extremely anthropocentric. They are only concerned with human procreation and or human extinction. And other antinatalists are sentiocentric. They advocate things like going vegan, the ending of factory farming, as well as um, intervening in, in animal uh, pro uh, procreation, both domestic and wild. Um, something that I found very interesting in regards to The Last Messiah is that, I mean, when I read it, for instance, the, the sentiocentrism of, of some kind or another is, uh, is so apparent. And it's, it's like this, it's like this beautiful heartbreak, yeah. you know, over, over the suffering of, 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 of sentience, you know, he's so clearly pondering and reacting to the, to the suffering of sentient life. But in the eyes of a lot of other antinatalists, this is an extremely anthropocentric antinatalist work. Mm -hmm. um, and there's been a lot of debate over that. Um, so finally, my question is, I would love to know um, any of your thoughts, really, on where you think Zappa stood on the subject of sentience. Mm -hmm. um, if you have any thoughts at all on the sort of anthropocentric versus sentiocentric antenatal divide. But also, I just, I really don't know to what extent he may have written I know that obviously he wrote a lot about ecology and, and, and the environment, but I don't know to what extent he 
talked about our responsibility towards animals, you know, whether he had any kind of, whether that bled over into his, you know, dietary choices at Right. all or, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, I would, I, th I agree with you that the last Messiah, the be especially the beginning, the story of this hunter who, who goes out when he, when he's out there by the watering hole and he's struck by this sudden new awareness of, of suffering, it does seem to be the suffering of all sentient beings. I mean, Yeah, it seems to be yeah. connected with the animals he's there to hunt. Yeah, So yeah. I think that, and, and I see that present in on the tragic sort of a, sort of a sadness about the situation of sentient beings. Yeah. It's present there and on the tragic, That's but good I to would, know. but I would say that um, he, he does have basically a traditional distinction between humans and animals that I think he, he seems to think factors into the nature of the tragedies that arise Okay. Yeah. And that the the big difference being, this is very traditional, but that in the human being, the the tragic course enter components of the tragic course enter in into conscious agency along their way. So there, I mean, roughly you could say there's choice involved in a, in a in a way that only humans could choose. And then Mm -hmm. so, Mm -hmm. Yeah. so it, if you translate that to animals, it starts to break down because you're missing. the conscious agency that you Sure. see in human beings. Okay. So um, there's, that's definite. So I would say on the tragic is a bit anthropocentric, Okay, yeah. but All right. at the same time, um, he does seem, you know, intimately uh, empathetic towards the suffering of Absolutely. non-humans. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's sentiocentric enough in my Yeah. in my Yeah. book, but I mean, but I I, I don't get this. I appreciate I what don't you're know saying, anything absolutely. about his diet in his later writings about the environment. We might eventually, we get him in English translation to see more of what Okay. he had to say about that. Yeah. He may have been forming his views then. Yeah. And then there, I don't know if you're familiar, but there's a story in On the Tragic um, about the cats on the island. Mm -mm, no, no. This is a fantastic story. I think somebody might have translated a version of this in English online. I won't, I won't belabor the story because it's long, but it's it fits in with this. Basically, a ship... There were a bunch of cats on a ship and the ship ran aground on an island and the crew of the ship abandoned it and maybe were rescued or something. Okay. And so you just have this grounded ship with cats on it. And so the cats all jump out and go, you know, move to the island. Right, right, right. There's no edible food on there's these uh, there's these beetles that live on the island and, and they jump around these hopping, jumping beetles, but they're not edible. Okay. But then on the beach. In the sand, there's these clams that are easy to easy to open and are edible. Mm hmm And basically, half or some of the cats move up to the higher ground and spend all their time trying to, you know, jumping, leaping, and chasing these beetles, like cats do. And then, but they couldn't eat; they they were inedible. Yeah. And then you have a, the other cats stayed down in the muddy shore and just dug in this in the sand and clay and. Yeah. gorged on these these clams and uh so Zappa uses this as an analogy of um, um same time you know these, these cats chasing these beetles are fulfilling their nature being living lives worthy of a cat but it's going to mean their death Right. 
And these other ones are undignified and stooping below. Uh -huh. But they're their gaining nature, their sustenance. But they're staying alive. Yeah, yeah. And so he, he that's another example he uses in conjunction with the Irish giant deer, I think. That's fascinating. I have to yeah, think about both story. of those. Well, all right. Well, I mean, that brings us. So thank you again for your thoughts on on all of that. And and again, there's so much to talk about when it comes to the last Messiah. So I mm -hmm. I apologize for kind of cutting uh, it off here, but yeah, um, sure. but let's go on to the meat and potatoes sure. of of we uh, talked a bit about it, but. Yeah, it's definitely woven into um, to what where we've been already, but let's go on to On the Tragic. So before we get into specifics, um, I mean, honest, just I, today, as we've talked, I, this is far more than I ever knew about On the Tragic. I know mm -hmm. I know precious little mm -hmm. about what's in On the Tragic. Um, in fact, I thought The Last Messiah was in On the Tragic, mm -hmm. um, and, and several people have told me that. So, yes, I mean, I, what is it? Um, what does it include? And a little bit more about how you became its translator. Yeah, so the, I'll start with the, how I became the translator. I, yeah. you know, I already told you I was deeply interested in Schopenhauer yeah. and Safa is sort of this natural successor to him. And I became aware of The Last Messiah and then I became aware of On the Tragic. And so, you know, I poked around to see is that anybody got an English translation out there? Yeah. Sure enough, no, nobody does. There have been a couple attempts to to do it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, for a little while I followed the developments. There's a few, you know, discussion boards online, forums where yeah, people, people tried about it. Yeah. And there was, there's even an article in Philosophy Now where these, I think they were grad students, were did an article or interview where they're heralding, we've, we're going to translate oh, yeah. on, on the tragic. Yeah. And I thought that was way premature because they eventually failed and didn't translate. So that uh, we should probably contact Philosophy Now and let them know. Put a little uh, addendum or what do you want to bet Sam already has, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or or Andreas, but but yeah, I mean there there were quite a number of attempts. Yeah, uh, so yeah. Um, I, I I followed some of them for a little while to see where they stood, and you know I thought okay maybe I'll. So my 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 original exposure to on the tragic was I just wanted to read it. Yeah, and yeah, even though I had a you know weak at best reading knowledge of. Norwegian and, and Danish, it would have taken, you know, it's not a fun reading experience when you're, I can't when imagine. You're, oh, yeah. When you don't have a, a native command of, of it. So I, I just wanted to read it. Yeah. And I waited a few months to see how these attempts were going. Not good at all. There, I think somebody ran the whole book through Google Translate and put it online, but it is, from what I understand, almost like, worthless. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. almost worthless. And, so eventually it, be, it became clear to me that nobody was going to get this translated anytime soon. And so I thought, well, I'll translate it myself so I can read it. Yeah. And um, my my initial thought was there's no way a publisher or the rights holder would ever allow my translation to be published because I'm not a native Norwegian. I didn't have a ton of confidence in yeah. the quality of what I would produce. Yeah. But I wanted to read it. And so I started translating it myself. And, you know, after a while, I, I looked back at what I was producing and I thought, hey, this is actually pretty good. And with some more re revising, I think this could have a really high quality. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so then I eventually I thought, oh, I'll give publishing a try. And I was surprised at uh, the enthusiasm when I went That's to so awesome. the, first, the first publisher. Yeah. 
yeah, so that's how I became the translator. And then, um, yeah, the other question was, what is what is the book? Yeah. And what is it about? But but before you get, I'm sorry, but I didn't mean to yeah, interrupt sure. you, but like, that, I just love that that's the story just because, I mean, it, it started out, I always just in my head think, you know, to be, to become the translator of a work like this, they go and, you know, they find you, you know, they're yeah. like, you know, they, they, you know, you're anointed the, 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 the translator of a work such as this somehow. Yeah, far, uh, you're, far from it. Nobody, you're, you're picked nobody from a short it. list of, yeah. you know, only a few candidates, but I love that this started out as, you know, I want to read it. Yeah. That's amazing. And, yeah. uh, you know, th there have been attempts to translate it where, like the Philosophy Now article, where they, you know, people announced to the world, we're going to translate it. Yeah. And I did the opposite. I didn't say a word. Nobody knew I was working on it. That's amazing. Ever. Until yeah. I started to seek publication for it. And I, it took me four wow. years to translate it. Wow. And I never said anything to anybody about yeah. it. Yeah. So um, it, I didn't, I didn't, first of all, I didn't want the pressure even if I could get a publishing contract, I didn't want that pressure, you know, hanging over me, especially since I didn't know if I would succeed. And I think that contributed to the death of several of these attempts. Yeah. If I you want to know the truth. truth. Yeah. yeah. So I just quietly worked and, you know, eventually my confidence grew when I saw what was being produced yeah. and I could see light at the end of the tunnel and, and all that. So. Well, yeah. thank you for sticking with it and for, for sure. doing it. I mean, it's yeah, it's awesome. I mean, I'm really, I'm really interested in this having been his doctoral dissertation. That that surprised me to no end. Um, yeah, I guess it shouldn't because I mean, I have seen the documentaries that they have made about him. Yeah. You know, with the wonderful footage of him, and he kind of goes, he kind of talks about it a little. I guess I'd forgotten, but um, but yeah, I know precious little about that history and the circumstances around this having been his his dissertation and so again we talked a little bit about this but i mean i know there's some disagreement about who pushed him yeah towards um whether it was arnie ness or this other professor that yeah pushed him we had we have a quote being his doctorate um, or his doctorate that i yeah so the the most recent edition of on the tragic in norwegian i think was in 1983 okay. that's the one that's currently in print yeah that's my understanding yeah and in that 1983 edition uh gentleman by the name of frederick pasha Pasha, uh who factored into zappa's life prominently in his university years uh wrote the uh was ref was referenced in the forward he didn't okay. write the forward the forward was written by this jan braga gunderson okay and so, yeah, this is quote 20. I don't know if you still have that. I can look at mine. Yeah, so in, this is in the forward. I, I took this forward out of the, the okay. my dish because I wrote a translator's preface and I have uh, a forward from Dr. Benatar and, yeah. and Thomas Lagatti. So I took those out, this one out. But the uh, this Gunderson wrote, on the on the tragic is Peter W. Zaffa's, uh doctoral dissertation from 1941 is a result of an 11-year effort. Wow. That Zaffa started after he quit his post as an attorney in Tromso and resumed studies at the University of Oslo. That's that 11-year period I referenced earlier that, yeah. that suggests he wrote uh, Last Messiah at the same time. He had previously earned a law degree. This time he took the study of literature. On the tragic was planned as a master's thesis in this discipline. Yeah, Zaffa came in contact with Professor Frederick Posh, who recommended that he submit the work for assessment for the PhD. So that that's... I don't know much beyond that. So yeah. When he when he went when he left law and decided to go back to university, it was to study literature. Right. I also have read. I'm not sure if this is 
the case, but I also read that when he wrote his thesis for his law degree, he did it in verse form. Really? <laughs> I'd like to see what that. Yeah, was. that would be amazing. Why? Well, wonder... <laughs> we got it through the committee. Yes. <laughs> but That's... so he went in to study literature. Yeah. But the, but the the work he was producing for his master's thesis was so deeply philosophical that yeah. this, I, I think this person, Frederick Posh or Posh, was a, a professor there. Okay. He thanks okay. him in his acknowledgments. And he encouraged him to submit it for the PhD in philosophy. And I think it was, again, uh, and I, I still wrote uh, your friend. Ru yeah, yeah Ru I think it was on that podcast that he was on that I got the idea that it was Arnie Ness who had pushed him in that direction but from what I also understand they had had they had had it may have been both of them but also they had had this major falling out so maybe that's why this guy got credited with it oh, and not Arnie Ness I don't know it's yeah. just a, a I'm totally pulling that theory out of my butt but yeah. I I don't know um so I don't I don't actually know if he had, if he defended it as that's a my next question thesis yeah in literature and so he has a master's in literature and a PhD in philosophy I don't actually know those details right but I know it it turned into his philosophy doctoral dissertation but it was all within the same university yeah right? University and of Oslo University of Oslo yeah. okay and we don't we know that he did defend yeah, the, the dissertation. PhD, yeah. Do we know anything about that defense? I don't know anything about it. No. Okay, that'd Unfortunately. be really interesting to. Yeah. Because there would have I'm been sure a summary of out. the defense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then. I know who would know. Yeah. Jurgen Hova would know, and maybe Andreas would. Yeah, I bet you Andreas would know too. I'll have to, I'll have to bug him about that. Yeah. Because that would really be interesting if there was any. So it was never defended. I don't know why this is. I, mean, I don't know why this is so fascinating to me. But so it was never defended. Well, he didn't fail the 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 literature yeah. masters. Yeah. I don't know if he defended yeah. it in literature for a masters also, or yeah. or if he just switched right right to right philosophy. I don't know the answer right. to that question. Well, that's okay. I, I don't have any sense that he failed his literature degree. Okay, yeah, but it, it really would be interesting I'm if there was any sure. anecdotes. I mean, you know, just because. Um, because of the anti, I mean, I think one of the reasons why this is so fascinating to me is because there is sort of these latent antinatalist themes in the on the tragic. I right. mean, years later, you have examples of 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 uh, Karim Akerma, who's a German antinatalist philosopher and historian, who you know, like fa like fa was failed at his postdoc oh, because of the because of the antinatalism. So it's just interesting. Like oh. this is an earlier example of somebody being able to sneak it in. Oh, right. Um, right. Yeah, that's interesting. You wonder if there was any controversies or anything like that. Um, yeah, because of the how it was perceived in those in that in those days. Just the darkness of the exactly. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. That'd be yeah. interesting to find out. Um, outside of having written this for his PhD. If, defense, I mean, for his dissertation, do we know much about what inspired Zaffa to write this work? Like, what is process of putting, I mean, we know it took 11 years, but what happened, like, what was, what led him to do this? Like, yeah. what inspired it? I don't know a lot about this, but my understanding is that I mentioned before, he had these philosophical yeah. yearnings early in life. And, you know, uh, Jürgen Hova wrote a biography of Zaffa that I've actually started translating. Oh, amazing. Okay. If I can convince him to let us uh, publish it. Um, but he, the, the biography begins with Sapfa telling his parents that he doesn't want to work in law anymore. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So he, in, in the, this biography by Jürgen Hova, he um, has a lot of diary entries that Sapfa wrote. Okay. Wow. Okay. And so 
you can get a sense of what Sapa was thinking at the time when he left law. Mm -hmm. So I think there were these, there was this discontentment with the profession that he wanted to do something in literature. He poses to his parents, uh, maybe I'll write for newspapers, maybe I'll do this. And his father, who I, I've learned was a kind of a cruel guy. Yeah, from what I've heard, yeah. Was furious. He said, we we spent all the money we have to send you to become a lawyer. And yeah. now you're telling us you don't want to do it. And you're going to go write for a newspaper. So, um, but I just think he had always had these philosophical yearnings and thoughts. And it was an avid reader and was, you know, that when the discontentment with his legal profession um, yeah. built, he started to think of literature and philosophy as an alternative. And so the thoughts that you see and on the tragic are thoughts he was having throughout that that period and before. You know, I, I think he's always had this obsession with the the bleakness of the the human situation. Yeah. And and what do we do about it? Yeah. And um, yeah, so I think that's what led him to to work on the on the book. I mean, that's really it. I, I, you know, it's, I'm really happy to hear that you're translating that biography too. I mean, you're basically going to eventually have the collected works. Well, I don't know. We'll I, see. I mean, but that it's, would take a long that time. would take a long time, but it sounds like you've made quite a dent in that already, to be honest. It's nice that uh, if the, if the, on the tragic is a success in the eyes yeah. of the publisher, then that'll give them more incentive to do more, which yeah. is nice. Yeah. Um, but it's just me or somebody else right matter. i know it's but it but it but just it's it's so exciting to just get so much more of a window into yeah. this person because sure. really you know for english speakers has been just been so little i think the biography would do as well as yeah tragic because people want to know about it some people want to know more about his life than read a 570 page philosophical work i honestly i mean i have i have equal interest in both sure. i mean i definitely want to read on the tragic but i'd love to know more about him as a, as a human being i mean who he was as a man right. is, is you know fascinating there is absolutely a real mythic quality to the existence of this work i mean really is no exaggeration yeah. to say that antinatalists have been you know pining for an english translation of this for ages but as as I'm sure you know, there have been lots of attempts, um, and what little I know, there's been quite a lot of drama surrounding the previous attempts to get this work in English. Do you know anything about these prior attempts? Do you have any insight into why it took so long for On, on the Tragic to see a full English translation? Yeah, I know a little bit about this, um, partly from Tim and Andreas, but yeah. partly from some other stuff I know. I know there were at least three or four. I Somebody told me, it might have been Andreas told me that there was an attempt to translate it in English while Zappa was even still alive. Oh, wow. I, did, that that, I didn't know at all. That failed. And then uh, my understanding is that the first attempts, I think, first of all, they the the the, the rights to Zappa's works are held by the Barrett and Peter Vessel Zappa Foundation, which yes. is which is uh, managed by this group called Unifor, which is housed in the University of Oslo. They manage a bunch of different uh, estates. And so they're sort of the gatekeepers for publishing anything. And uh, yeah. I think maybe, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, they were a little surprised they was interested in, in publishing Safa. They're skeptical about the English interest in it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there were some personality clashes with people that approached them. Yeah. But I think it took the foundation time to realize the enthusiasm that there was to read Safa. Yeah. And there may have been some 
changes on the board members and sure uh, sure but you know by the time i got to them yeah they were fairly enthusiastic although when i i had a failed attempt with a different publisher it wasn't the oh, foundation's okay. fault it was yeah. the publisher's fault yeah so i i had a friend uh, well an a, acquaintance who I talked to about publishing a guy named uh, Professor Todd K. Shackelford. He's at okay. Oakland University in the D Detroit Metro. Yeah. Big Sapfa fan and a psychologist and the director of their psychology center there at Oakland University. It's another another audience for itself. There's a, there's a psychological theory in, on the tragic too. And he, oh, wow. Okay. He's tremendously interested. And he, he uh, gave me, I won't say the name of the publisher, but he gave me a contact at a publisher and initially they were enthusiastic about publishing it and we started to work through the details but when once it came time to talk to the the foundation the foundation initially only wanted to grant us rights to publish the translation in uh, the united states and canada okay because i guess they were existing not proposals but people had contacted them with interest in publishing in english translation and they were in england and denmark okay so I think the foundation was trying to, um, you know, say these other people came to us first from England and Denmark. Yeah. So we're not going to allow you to publish it in the whole entire English speaking world because of that. Um, but then my publisher, I think in the negotiations, they didn't like that. They wanted worldwide rights. Right. Thank goodness. You know. And then that went back and forth for a while. And eventually the my the editor at that publisher stopped returning my emails. Oh no. Okay. <laughs> and you know, I pressed them and pressed them. And then even the Sapa Foundation pressed them and they just were silent. And uh wow. so I said, okay, well, we'll go somewhere else. And then I I found Peter Lang fairly quickly. You hear these stories about um, uh, you know, writers who send their book to a hundred yeah, publishers before they find one. I was I didn't think I had the stomach for that. Um, so, but it, I didn't need the stomach for that because you know I didn't write this book. They were enthusiastic, right? Sapfa, not about me. And uh, so the the first publisher I went to was enthusiastic. Wow, that's amazing. But then dropped the ball. Well, well, yes, yes. Okay, I thought you were talking about Peter Lang. Right, right, right. And then I went to a, a, somebody who has a really small. Um, publishing house but the foundation was not fully comfortable with the the collection of books that they publish in the size okay right and then i thought so then i did sort of a general search and i maybe i only sent a proposal to five or six publishers and, and peter lang showed incredible enthusiasm that the, wow. the acquisitions editor there that i worked with his name is uh dr philip dunche okay and he knew of Zappa. okay Amazing. He had a friend in university who was from Norway and talked to him all the time about Zappa. Wow. So he was aware of who Zappa was and yeah. his basic philosophy and interested in him. And so when he got word of of the, my proposal, he jumped on it. He was all over it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. And then we went back to the foundation. Yeah. And I asked him up front, so are you, are you wanting to grant rights just in the U.S. and Canada or worldwide? And they came back and said... We think worldwide worldwide rights would be appropriate. So I don't know if that British and Danish proposal, like they maybe contacted him and they said, no, nah, we abandoned that. Okay, maybe. But suddenly they're interested in worldwide rights. That's and awesome. 
and it was pretty seamless from there. That's incredible. We just had to do a little negotiating and then they gave us the rights. It's just, it's time has come. Yeah. That's amazing the way it all worked out. And they um, showed interest, the foundation showed interest in continuing to publish with Peter Lang with these other. I'm so happy to hear that. I'm just, children. this is such, I'm, I'm not the only one who's going to be like elated yeah. <laughs> to hear all of this just yeah. because, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the the time for Zapfa's work to become right. more accessible is is now. I mean, do you have any? I mean, this might be way too early to know all this or to even ask this, but I mean, do you think I have no window into? I mean, obviously, I have a window into how accessible his work is in English, but have his works been translated in other languages um, before this? And do you think that you know, with your version of On the Tragic and perhaps other things coming out, that will be you know, seeing his work in other languages other than English. Do you think that's... I think there are some be... attempts to to publish on the tragic in a couple of other languages. Okay. And I think some of his work may have been published in German Okay, in the past. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there's a sprinkling of translations in other languages out there. I think yeah. there... I could be wrong. I probably shouldn't even say this, but I think there's a Spanish translation of... I'm aware of a, an effort to publish it in Spanish. Okay. I don't think it's out yet. Okay, okay. Right. Well, I'll say no more about that one then. Um, <laughs> is am I correct in it that um, one of the reasons why on the tragic is so notoriously hard to translate is because it's not just in Norwegian; it's also in parts of it are in Danish as well. Well, there's a lot of discussion about this online about the difficulty of translating it because of the language itself. It's okay. not written in both Norwegian and Danish. Okay, it's written in Norwegian, but it's written in a in, in a former Norwegian. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so um, there's a lot of different versions of Norwegian, and for much of history, Norway and Denmark shared the language. Yeah. I think the Norway's independence, something eighteen fourteen, I think. That sounds about right. And they started to build, you know, sort of their own culture independent identity. Of, yeah. of Denmark. And so the Danish changed, Norwegian changed. Yeah. They're mutually intelligible, but they, they are different. And so there's a lot of different versions of Norwegian. And there, there's this Rick Small version and there's this Book Mall version and so on. Right. So I asked Jurgen Hova about this. Like precisely what version is is this and i don't think i i might have sent you um no i didn't i, ha I have it on my phone if you don't mind me reading it real sure quick. not at all not at all yeah so you're gonna you're gonna hova wrote uh um i had an email conversation with him about yeah the exact language here's how he characterized it which is in the translator's preface in the book he said it was written in the language that Zapfa learned in school in the Norwegian spelling norms that were established in 1907. Oh, wow. It would be characterized today as eccentrically conservative Riksmal and is very close to Danish. Okay. So that might be where you... Um, That's probably why. It's written in Norwegian and Danish. Yeah. It's it's written in a... So it would have been old-fashioned even when Sapa published it. Okay. So he's intentionally writing in an old-fashioned why style i don't know he seemed to love to play with style like talk, yeah. talk about him writing his uh thesis for his law degree in uh, in verse form yeah he just liked to play with the styles of language do you think that was part of his humor maybe it, it does lend an ele i think it has an elegance to it that yeah. maybe is lost in like we see happening in english all the time right um, right 
So yeah, a lot of people make a big deal about how difficult it is to translate because of this, you know, version that he of Norwegian he wrote it in. I yeah. I think that it would probably be more noticeable to a, a native Norwegian speaker than somebody translating it. The the big the big difference is in the spelling of a lot of words. I can imagine the spellings have changed. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it it was very quick that I just began to convert the spellings in my mind. I, I knew he was spelling a particular word this way. And I knew con contemporary Norwegian spells it a different way, but mm -hmm. I knew what those, the sort of the conversion was. Right. Right. So that wasn't really that big of a problem. And then the old fashioned style, you know, most of my interest in philosophy is 18th, 19th century. So right. All it's equally it's old fashioned. Yeah. Yeah. And so I didn't have a, ton of problems with that i'd say the biggest problems were um well the length <laughs> yeah so it's 570 pages yeah. right and the norwegian version we haven't said that already same. yeah wow. and so you know i i had to just come up with an incremental yeah. systematic uh plan but i i've always it's just part of my nature i've always loved seemingly insurmountable tasks yeah that when done incrementally can be accomplished. Right, right. You, you have to have a passion uh, that pushes you through. 100%. Filmmaking is like that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a certain, what Sapa would call an autotelic enjoyment of the process, which I had, which is one of the requirements for being able to translate it. Yeah. Uh, the length. And then, of course, with any language, idioms are always a problem. That's the oh, hardest thing to learn in any other yeah. language. But I yeah. had... Rua Fremstedal and Jürgen Hova to help me with any of those. And to be honest with you, there are a couple passages in there that even those two native Norwegian Sapa experts wow. couldn't completely figure out. Wow. <laughs> so we did the best we possibly could with them. Did they were they technically your editors? No, they were just okay. I would just shoot them an email. I, I, I okay. between the two of them, I only asked them about maybe eight or ten passages okay okay and they were you know it Zappa would have a sentence where i, I just didn't know what, what he was talking about or there yeah some yeah. reference to something that's in norwegian folklore or something okay and they helped me with, with those but they yeah they, they had a very very light touch just short emails okay interesting. they would say this is what i think he means and then was the whole was the whole book once translated handed over to editors that like looked at both versions and okay so what happened is i, I finished it i said i can't do any better this is the best i can you know I yeah went, i went through it through maybe, maybe four or five times and um i mean i translated one sentence at a time yeah and i would basically look at the sentence to see if i could make get the gist of it yeah if i if i couldn't completely get the gist of it i would use dictionaries to help me and then, uh, but I would just do one sentence at a time, and then I'd highlight in red terms that I knew were basically right, but that I would probably want to tweak later. Okay. And, you know, so this is my first run through. So you just, I had thousands and thousands of red highlighted wow. terms and phrases yeah. and things. Then I went back and worked on just those. And eventually, when I was satisfied with the sentences, then I worked on the flow between sentences. Right. And, you know, eventually I was editing it without looking at the Norwegian translation just for continuity and style. Yeah. And then, uh, so when I, with my publisher, with Peter Lang, their, their books, I don't know about all of them, but 
a lot of them are peer reviewed. So when mm. you when you fill out a proposal, they want you to recommend potential reviewers. Okay, right. And so I put uh, Dr. David Benatar at the top of the list because right. I thought in the world of people who know Sattva, he's probably the most famous of those who work in academics. Maybe, yeah. And have has one of the highest reputations. I mean, yeah. he's published by Oxford. Yeah. So I put him at the list thinking, you know, that won't happen. Uh -huh. And then I put three or four others. And uh, so they sent the the book off to someone for review and then eventually came back to me with the review. And the, the reviewer can remain blind, you know, so you, yeah. you don't see who they are. Yeah. They This reviewer said, no, I'm fine with them knowing. And so I get the review back and I look, it's Dr. David Benatar. Wow. So Benatar is, That's incredible. was the official reviewer of the, no kidding. of the book and told Peter Lang, yes, you need to publish this. And yes, this is a good translation. Uh, I mean, he's not an expert in Norwegian, but as, no, as but... far as his review of the contents. Yeah. Um, so then Peter Lang had no problem. You know, everything came together. That That's point. pretty extraordinary, Ryan. <laughs> yeah. And then that prompted me to say, hey, I should probably ask him to write a forward. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, while you're at it. you know. Also... <laughs> I've only sent the, I sent the book to, so I, I wrote, I mean, uh, Dr. Benatar, Thomas Ligotti, and the people who wrote um, endorsements on the back of the book. Okay. Okay. Uh, Todd K. Shackelford at Oakland University, Rua Fremstadal, Jürgen Hova. They, I sent all of them yeah. a PDF of the translation in case okay. they wanted to review. Right. Uh, but they're the only ones in the world who've seen my translation. Wow. And Peter Lang. And Peter Lang. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's exceptional all around. <laughs> yeah. Very, I mean, very, very rigorous and with very high uh, endorsements. Yeah. Extremely high endorsements. So amazing. Congratulations. Oh, thanks. Kareem Akurma, who we spoke a little bit about before. He's a, a German anti-Nicholas philosopher and historian. Uh, he asks, in discussions on the internet, Zappa's voluminous book on the tragic is sometimes heralded as anti-Natalism's yet, yet unexploited holy grail. Upon, upon closer inspection, however, the book contains but a few truly antinatalistic statements. Would you agree with that? Would you say that that's true, Ryan? Because um, based on our conversation today, it sounds like it's... It sounds like there's a lot more in there than people are giving, kind of giving it credit if, for. You know, the, the, the expression true, truly antinatalist um, passages... Uh -huh. It's probably true that there there are there are not a ton of okay. whatever truly antinatalist uh, um, passages means, uh, but you know I you know the way Sapa wrote this book is a way that philosophy is hardly ever written anymore. Which yeah, is, we used to call them like system builders, people like Kant and Hegel, and these guys write these huge books, and and they might have a a, a single topic they're they're trying to talk about but they build a world around the topic yeah. and you can't really talk about their conclusions without talking about the world they build around it mm -hmm. and i, I mean antinatalism is not stuff a stated right, topic right. of research of right the concept of the term existed. yeah that's the topic of it he wants yeah. to try to figure out what exactly does the term tragic mean can we explain it in a way that accounts for the way it's used in everyday speech? Right. Can we formulate it in a way that allows us to 
identify a tragedy versus a non-tragedy and and can we use it also in the in the aesthetic world can we you know say why this particular book or this play this novel this story is tragic and why why this other one is not that's the stated right. goal right but along the way he seems to come come to the conclusion that the human species fits the description of the term tragic as he's formulated it yeah and so i think that forms the basis for antinatalist claims that he does make in as much as he makes them yeah but that's the reason i mean you know you know if if you think that it's unethical to reproduce there must be a reason why you think that right right and you, you know you you could use dr benatar's asymmetry argument as the reason why but that's not the only reason that a person certainly could have for why right and i think he's building he's building a a, a view of the human situation that could easily be the foundation for antinatalist thought. So I would I wouldn't want to say ah they're just these few passages pull them out, forget the rest. Yeah, yeah. I would I would caution against divorcing those passages from the bigger picture that he's trying to build. No, that sounds very like a very wise, uh, th like it being very wise to say that. Um, yeah, because I know there's somebody online who has pulled some of those out and said, okay, this is all he said about... Well, yeah, I mean, and I, yeah, I think we're about to get to that. In spite of frequent ill-informed claims, to the contrary, the aforementioned truly antinatalist statements from On the Tragic have already been made available in English by Dr. Akerma, a professional translator himself. Um, have you consulted his translations for your own work, too? No, I, I'm aware of the existence of this, uh, this a collection of passages, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm aware of its existence, but no, I didn't. Okay, uh, I didn't consult uh, those. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll send you a link to those if, you, if you're at all interested in those. But, but yeah, I mean, it sounds kind of the sense that I've gotten, and and also just based on what you've just said as, as a moment ago, is that like, yeah, it's you could maybe think of it in terms of the whole book is building a case, right? You know, again, going back to his law, yeah, you know, yeah, that's a good analogy. It, it's building a case for why why the human condition is or why procreation is a tra is a tragedy right. why bringing somebody into existence is a tragedy exactly. building a prescription for the diagnosis yeah it's like if you were to or the way around <laughs> yeah like it's like if you were to say Kant's critique of pure reason he's trying to say that uh, the world we perceive is partly yeah shaped by our mental capacities okay well yeah the passages where he says that and then just throw the rest out no he, he builds an argument slowly that's the way philosophy used to be done. It's rarely done that way anymore. Sometimes it is, but uh, these, you know, these great system builders, that's what I love in philosophy is these big uh, cases that take time and nuance to build. Yeah. And so if he, if he's making a case for antinatalism at all, he's making it on, on a, a huge foundation yeah. that he yeah. spends a long time building. And, and so what are changing the, my wording from this question a little bit? I mean, what are the elements of that of that case? Like what I mean, because again, aside from these passages, I know so little about yeah. what is in on the tragic. So what are these? And you've you've hinted at them a little bit. There's like a there's psychology. There's uh, evolution. Evolution. There's there's law. There's all kinds of things that build this case towards that end. Yeah. Perhaps. Well, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, so in the in the very beginning of the book, he he basically says, "You got to know what my method is before you know I start building this case." And yeah. he calls his method a biosophical method. So he he wants to look at biology 
evolutionary biology, but he, but he wants to do it not just in a traditional, uh, he wants to stretch science a bit and he knows that yeah. this is going to make some scientists skeptical of his arguments, but he doesn't think you can access the answer to the question he has without stretching it a bit. So he, he proposes biosophical method, which is sort of, you know, biology, evolutionary biology, but partly from the perspective of, of the lived human life. Yeah, yeah. So he's doing a lot of biology. And so he talks, he spends a lot of time talking about protoplasm of all things, which I know very little about, but now I know more from, wow. from him. Yeah. Sort of these, this, this substance that is the building blocks of, of, of life forms. And uh, he talks a lot about it's undifferent, protoplasm is undifferentiated. So it's not anything in particular. Okay. But it becomes particular things. And so he, he plays a lot on this, um, the elements in living organisms that are undifferentiated between those that once they become differentiated, they're locked in. Okay. They have no room for, for change. Protoplasm and endless possibilities. Uh, once it becomes differentiated in something like a tooth or a bone or a, whatever. Mm -hmm. now, right. Now it's, it's, it's shape and it's task and it's function is locked in. Right. So he makes a lot of this. He thinks there's a lot of undifferentiated components in the human being that are sort of settled in animals okay i see yeah he, he quotes somebody who calls a human an ape born too early he makes a lot of which is interesting he he makes a lot of um he builds a lot on this idea that primitiveness you, you when you think about the evolutionary development mm. you think that primitive and complex and primitive and sophisticated has a chronological you know, yeah, th things are most primitive at the beginning of the right process and the most sophisticated at the end. He disagrees. Yeah. He thinks yeah. that you can have something that emerges chronologically later that's more primitive than something that emerged chronologically earlier. And that was a concept that was kind of picked up on in True Detective, right? Yeah. 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 So there that's the 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 quote of humans are apes born too early it's sort of yeah. like, like a, an ape or i don't know a gorilla or a chimpanzee or whatever is in some sense is more sophisticated than the human being because it has less undifferentiated components it basically it's settled and that kind of goes back to the dog and the cat yeah stories the, right he, he like talks a more, lot about yeah pets and and he says that uh, he tries to understand why human beings love pets so much mm -hmm. And he talks especially of cats, and he he uh, says that they have a, a they have a tranquility and a, and a um, contentment that comes from basically the evolutionary work being done, and they're perfectly yeah. at harmony, perfectly in harmony with their being and their environment, and we sense that from them, and we we appreciate it, we appreciate the 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 finishedness of their yeah thing. and then human beings on the other hand i don't want to go through the entire argument but human beings have very little physical skills that would enable them to um, survive and, and prosper mm -hmm. so yeah, the right. lack of physical so you know a fight with a wild animal the wild animal is going to win unless you have things like weapons Right, right. Or ingenuity for traps or protection or building yeah. building a structure or whatever. So whatever lacks 
inefficiency, insufficiencies humans have because of the way they've evolved are compensated by mental capacities. Yeah, we're like a, a, a perfect, well, not perfect, but we're yeah. a, a very well-developed brain with like right. this imperfection of a body attached. Yeah. That can make up for all those yeah. inadequacies. Yeah. But the problem is the nature of the mental capacities, things like imagination, are so unfettered and analogous to the protoplasm that's undifferentiated that they, they have a wild application beyond what they're needed. Yeah. So what you end up with is um, just like the giant deer with the huge antlers, the antlers gave it an advantage in nature, it could flip enemies over and so on. It also presented problems. It get caught, gets caught up in thickets. Yeah. It's too heavy, requires too much calcium. Same thing with the human mental capacities. They make up the difference in our physical inadequacies, but they present a host of problems because of their unfettered nature. Yeah. I can, I can imagine anything, you know, I can plan anything. I can, I can uh, put together just in my mind, uh, all sorts of things that I don't need to for my survival. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that presents problems that create. Right. Right. So basically that human being is over evolved. Right. Or in that respect is over evolved. And just like the Irish giant deer, it's probably going to lead to our downfall. Right. Okay. Which we see in politi the political sphere and in war. And yeah. Tensions and things like that. Technology, nuclear technology, and so on. So yeah. So, but to get to yeah. you know, all of that, he, he, you know, he talks about uh, this protoplasm and the biology of living organisms and uh, abilities and needs. Um, he goes through uh, different human interest fields. Okay. Social. The social interest field, the the physical interest field, the biologic we call biological metaphysical field of interest, mm -hmm. and it basically builds a, a picture of human beings as uh, wildly varying, but mm -hmm. within these parameters, they have people who have incredible metaphysical interests and needs and abilities. Yeah, and then you have other people. They could care less. Yeah. They have no interest whatsoever. Yeah. And you have other people who have, uh, you know, social interests. They're a social butterfly. They, you know, their whole life revolves around. Yeah. Others don't want to talk to another human being ever. Right. So, but all in, in all of this, you have the sort of the meeting of fields of interest, abilities, and, and what the, what the, what the need demands of those abilities. You have, surpluses of ability in some cases you have deficiencies of ability in other cases that this basically accounts for all the struggles that human beings face yeah yeah they face struggles when they have too much ability and the ability needs an outlet but can't find one they struggle when they have a need for ability but they don't have enough of it yeah uh yeah so this this puts this the human being in eventually potentially into a tragic situation wow yeah. My mind is just kind of blown just because I, I again, I've had so little window right. into what is on? in this thing, you know, and it's like, wow. So he, so yeah, he covers, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm in, I'm in very pleasant shock. Honestly. Yeah, and he does, yeah. And he does eventually give us, uh, I was laughing the other day going through the proof because he finally gives us a definition of the tragic on, you know, like page 255. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And then spends another 300 pages that working out the implications of it. But yeah, so he, he really wants to settle on a new definition of the tragic. And I won't, I won't, you know, talk too much about that, but 
and then you know talk about when it applies he, he basically uh, the tragic is it involves yeah. what he calls qualified catastrophes so catastrophes qualified catastrophes so not all not all catastrophes are tragic but all tragedies are catastrophic okay okay so some catastrophes qualify in his mind um to be called tragic others don't that mm -hmm. there has to be an element of greatness involved and there has to be a link between the greatness and the downfall and eventually he talks a lot about um literary works he, he has a section where he examines three literary works aeschylus's prometheus bound okay shakespeare's hamlet and the book of job oh okay to say are these actually tragic works and uh, and why and so on but actually his section on the book of job is one of my favorite sections in the whole book he has sort of a very different take on the book of job he thinks the book of job is sort of the crown jewel of indicts indictments against an unjust world order what he what do you call that he i would agree with that misplaced in the in the bible he thinks, really yeah he thinks that uh believers jewish and christian believers think the book of job is supporting their their idea of pressing through suffering and just oh leaving in the hands of god when in actuality yeah. he thinks that job discovers a flaw in god god's nature the world order which is that it's fundamentally unjust well as as somebody <laughs> that's never had a religious background that was always, that's similar to my own reading of of job a yeah. little bit and interestingly i mean job does make some highly antinatalist statements himself yeah within, i don't know if zappa points to any of that he, he you know he but, never used the term anti no no of course, he, it, he definitely suggests this is in line with the other i don't think that word existed no yet reason. probably not it it seems to have existed a little bit in 1950 something okay but so it didn't shortly, yeah. didn't really mean anything philosophical it was yeah. more like you know well we don't really know exactly yeah where it, where it started yeah he he but, the his take on the book of job is amazing to me and i could see you know theological discussions of it too because it's not that he he basically argues that job discovers that god is what he calls a cosmic caveman yeah that he's fundamentally unjust and, and has no interest in anything other than power and reason is not something that he wants to engage in well again this makes me want to read this this other work that you're translating so much more too now like oh, uh, the jesus biography, the jesus biography. The play, i mean yeah you know the uh, jesus or god is a psychopath yeah. i mean it sounds like he was <laughs> He was making that determination even even then. Yeah, I love the getting phrase cosmic caveman because yeah, I love that. All you know, when Job meets with God in the book mm. of Job, eventually God appears. Yeah, and Job wants to have a conversation about why is my suffering deserved? Right, and uh, God just basically says, "Who are you to ask me for justification?" Uh, yeah, and he says that you know starts talking about look how powerful the crocodile is and the hippopotamus. And he's just talking about his, basically all his he nature. cared about was power. Right, right, right. And Joe was, well, what about? Uh, can you give me a reason? And it, he's always just met with the cosmic caveman thing. Power is all that matters. I'm powerful. You're weak. Submit. And Joe eventually realizes, oh. I'm not dealing with a reasonable being here. I'm dealing with someone that only cares about power. So then he submits, but he's not submitting 
it for any reason other than there's no way I could have He's, a conversation with this person about uh, there's what, no way to reason with a mad right. god. Right. I mean, but that's so yeah. I mean, well, I don't want to take us too far afield, but like you know, in trying in in all in everything you've told me about his exploration of like what is the true nature of like the dog or the human yeah to find out that god is insane <laughs> you know it just seems yeah or yeah or drunk, drunk at the wheel drunk at the wheel yeah that there's right. no one sane right, right driving Cosmic the bus caveman. kind of kind of primitive dumb <laughs> i mean a lot of people have have said that zapfa became a little less pessimistic as he got older i can see that. but this seems like he was pretty there's no there's, some, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's definitely some on the dark tragic. passages, yeah. yeah. And and he thinks he thinks that the world whatever the world order means, whatever whatever is causing the universe and the world to be set up the way it is, uh, is fundamentally unjust. And yeah. Not always, but uh it sometimes talks a lot about the environment. Sometimes it's usually it's just indifferent. Yeah. The environment doesn't care about you. Right. Sometimes it's sympathetic. So you know you're you're thirsty. You need water, and you come across fresh. You get fresh lucky streams. sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Or you need you, you need to eat, and you come across a fruit tree. But usually it's indifferent. But sometimes it's hostile. Yeah. And there's a version of hostile that he calls satanic. Sometimes okay. it's satanic. Interesting. So then you think about things like the, I don't know, like the tsunamis that right. happened in Asia several years ago. Oh it yeah. Just wipes out three hundred thousand people. You yeah. Know, Satanic is a good word to use for that. Absolutely. And so, yeah, so the situation of the human being is it exists in a usually indifferent, yeah. often hostile, sometimes sympathetic environment that's not fundamentally just. Suffering is often undeserved. Uh, fortune is often undeserved. Right. Yeah. That it's just... I mean, and that's a good reason to be an antinatalist, maybe. Absolutely. Well, I, I certainly think so. <laughs> so I think, yeah, that's why I suggested don't divorce the passages from the... Well, I think that's really, yeah. I I, I mean, again, without having read it myself, I think you're you're instilling a real piece of wisdom about the way, to, way of looking at this work, that I think that it there are a lot of people, myself included, just because, uh, well, out of, just out of ignorance, that... Yes, we're excited about this, but we're writing it off because, well, you know, this is just a collection of passages, and yeah. then that's it. But, but no, I mean, this—he's yeah. making a. Um, there's a lot leading up to those passages being made or those statements yeah. being made. I mean, so I, well, I know it sounds a bit cheesy, but I've never been more excited to read this thing. Oh, good. Um, so I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah, so. and then he he spends quite a bit of time then talking about the concept of the tragic in art, in theater, drama, okay, literature, yeah. And you know, and you know, Aristotle gave us the first sort of literary critical theory of of tragedy, and so he looks back yeah. at that, builds on it. He's, I love his his section on Hamlet. He loves Shakespeare's Hamlet. He thinks it's sort of the yeah the exemplary um, tragedy. Yeah. Well, it seems like we're so fortunate that he he had all these different backgrounds, right? Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, he, 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 his, his assessment of all of these things is coming from law, coming from literature, coming from right. philosophy. And it's like, and even mountain climbing, it's very figures, mature. The image of mountain climbing this, figures. That's frequently too. in the book too. Yeah. Yeah. He was already doing that yeah. a lot by this, by this point. Yeah. Sure. Sure. 
There's a lot of imagery from mountain climbing in there. Yeah, that is a whole area. I know that there's whole. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I know that there's. I don't know her name. She was also on the on the Hermet Hermeneutics podcast. I mean, her work is just all about oh, cool. you know the impact of his of his mountain climbing. Um, it, yeah, it's not something I know that much about. So, I mean, again, we've we've talked a little bit about this already, but the the billion dollar question: if there's anything else that you would like to add to this, is I mean, what what was it like translating this monster? I mean, so it took you four years. You've talked a little bit about the process. You magically became this Norwegian, you know, expert, basically. Like, I mean, yeah. Well, but you know, I think like most things in life, people have a lot of misconceptions about translation. Yeah. I think most people would assume that if you can read two different languages, then you could... You'd, I hand you something in one of them and you put it into the other. Right. But there's a host of other things that have to be in place. You know, yeah. you need certain um, temperamental features. You have to be uh, an incredibly patient person. Yeah. You have to not mind or even love tedium and incremental work. Yeah. You have to be interested in the topic of whatever it is you're translating. Otherwise, you won't have the the sort of the, the fuel to push you through all the work yeah so i had a deep interest in in the book um you have to have time i, I think for uh, sure if you had a family with children it might be impossible to get through the translation you just wouldn't have the time to do it and the focus um you know your career has to be such that it affords you the time i had been in the classroom a lot but I had started to teach more online. This I started translating before the COVID lockdown. Okay, yeah. Maybe a year and a half before. Okay. Um, but I had sort of carved space in my life. Yeah. I don't have any children. I have a partner, but she was busy too. And so I did have the time and I basically had the patient. I'm, the weakest part was my Nor Norwegian knowledge, which... Yeah, you had all the other elements in place. Right? Regardless of what uh, your situation, you're going to have some weak areas that you have to yeah. build but uh it was slow <laughs> yeah and uh painful at times but okay. i really did feel a bit like an archaeologist with you know their little brushes yeah like what am i going to find here what am, i couldn't wait to see what the next sentence yeah uh, said i mean my my ability to read norwegian is, is really slow so it's not like i can just fly through the book to see what it says sure of course i have to sort of mine what Take it, it inch by out. inch yeah yeah and uh i started I, I was i think here in chicago when i started by the bulk of the translation i did in toronto the 39th floor of a high-rise apartment in downtown toronto yeah and i would lock myself in the office every day seven days a week for about i think for four hours 10 to 2 or something like that oh my god i wouldn't even go out to go to the restroom or anything. And I would just intensely work for four hours every day, wow. seven days a week for many, many months. Yeah. And that got me through a bunch of it. And uh, yeah, I just, I just kept plugging along. It took me four years to translate it. And, uh, and then we had publication problems, you know, that problem with the first publisher. Oh, that's a bit heartbreaking. Added a year. Oh, wow. Yeah. I can only, we imagine. would have had this already a year ago. Yeah. So I did a lot of waiting Right. And then I got to start on other projects. Okay. But uh, yeah, it was tedious, but it, uh, enjoyable in an archaeological sense. 
Yeah, I, I love that that sense of archaeology about this about this whole project. And I'm just happy, I'm just so happy you saw it through. But yeah, I mean the determination that it must have taken. Yeah, yeah I, I guess I was just, I just have, I just possessed that that kind of drive. Yeah, just by uh, yeah accident. <laughs> well, again, the whole the entire internet. Please in the comments, tell <laughs> tell tell Ryan how appreciative we are. Uh, really, truly, thank you, Ryan. Sure. Um, does Zappa speak about the subject of ending one's life within on the tragic? Um, I mean, again, I think suicide may or may not be sort of hinted at, or a sense of pro-mortalism may, may sort of be hinted at in in um, The Last Messiah. Um, but I've sort of heard conflicting things about his ideas regarding suicide, like that he wasn't necessarily in favor of it, but he thought that like things like the right to die should not be fought against. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm very curious to... Thoughts on yeah, that. he does talk about suicide at times and on on the tragic. One of the main ways he talks about it is he spends a lot of time trying to distinguish between the heroic and the tragic. Okay, sure. some of the things people call tragic actually are are not; they're heroic. Yeah, and so I think he he does make some claims about heroic suicides. Okay, seems seems fine with those almost you know that they're praiseworthy um is that the same as like rational suicide i don't know i mean it would be okay. it's when you have competing competing interests okay and you preserving your life being one of them and you're willing to cut off this interest for the sake of this other interest that is more important but this one seems to be more um loom larger in your in the in the sensory field okay so i don't know like a, a, you know some thought experiment scenario where you have to kill yourself to save your family or something like that yeah it's like you're sacrificing sacrificing one interest for an, another interest that you believe believe in more strongly like jumping on the grenade to save, yeah, the, yeah. save the town or something like that right. yeah yeah i see or kamikaze pilots or something yeah. like that. So he does talk quite a bit about that kind of stuff. As far as approaching the as, uh, your response to the cosmic situation of the human being being suicide, I don't I don't detect he's particularly in favor of that. He, okay. One yeah. place he when he talks about real solutions and pseudo solutions, he calls that he calls that suicide a pseudo solution. Okay, interesting. And then he immediately says after that, closer to a real solution is a cessation of reproduction. So he talks about suicide and antinatalism in the same breath. Uh -huh. And he says, basically, antinatalism is closer to a real solution. He didn't say it's a real solution. He might still be classifying it as a pseudo solution, but it's closer to a real solution. Maybe he thinks it can be developed into a real solution. Okay. But he presents suicide as a, a pseudo solution to a problem. It, it seems to be in keeping with Schopenhauer's view. Yeah. Schopenhauer's father died mysteriously yeah. when he was young, and most people think it was suicide. Yeah. So fair. his book, The World is Will and Representation, he talks quite a bit about, about suicide. Yeah. And his take on it is that it doesn't accomplish what it sets out to do which is to bring the denial of the will. It is an act of will. So it doesn't actually bring about the denial of will. Okay. Safa seems to be echoing something like that, where I suicide doesn't accomplish what it, 
in these scenarios where it's a response to the human situation. Right, right. It doesn't accomplish what it sets out to do. Okay, okay. But in, in the her heroic situations, it very well could. Yeah, yeah. And you, you might be able to make some arguments in the right to die cases. You know, like you, your um, your less expenses will be expended on your care if you die, which will benefit your family. And I see like that. Yeah. You so that make a heroic case, maybe. I see. I see. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. All right. Fascinating. Fascinating. From what I understand, the book will include some statements by two other titans of antinatalism, both David Benatar and Thomas Ligotti. You've mentioned that previously. Congratulations. Um, is there something you can tell us about the statements made by those two in this book? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, once Dr. Benatar reviewed the the book and, and gave it a positive review for, yeah. for Peter Lang, I, I, I didn't know Dr. Benatar, but mm -hmm. I emailed him and he he was uh, said he was honored to write a forward and was excited about the. That's so awesome. He doesn't refer to Zappa a lot, or if at all in his in his writing, not much. A little. He but is not a lot. he is a, a interested in yeah. Zappa, so he was excited about the translation and was glad to write it. And uh, Thomas Lagatti, I didn't know either, and I somehow got his email from uh, somebody at a small publish a publishing associate, uh, acquaintance I have. And uh, he was excited about it. Well, I come to find out later, he'd been actually in working towards getting a translation done. Oh, really? Before. Yeah. Yeah. He was involved in earlier effort, efforts that failed. I think I've heard that. He's a huge yeah. Zappa fan. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and he was glad to write a. He he was originally just supposed to write an endorsement for the back of the book, but oh, what, okay. what he sent me was too big. <laughs> okay. <laughs> too long. Somehow that doesn't surprise me, just g given how much he loves Zappa. So I, yeah. I asked the publisher, "Can we have two forwards?" And they, they said, "Yeah, that's fine." So, nice, nice. Uh, they're they're not particularly long. Dr. Benatar is about five hundred words. And okay. Yeah. Thomas Gotti is about half of that, two hundred fifty, and they're basically they basically are situating the importance of Zappa in the history of philosophy and 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 different important thought including antinatalism some, yeah some of it so yeah sort of situating it and, and showing appreciation that it now exists in english amazing okay uh, i'm just i'm just it's that's really wonderful that they're that they've given their endorsements um, yeah i was very grateful yeah do you, do you think that i and you haven't you mentioned that you haven't read conspiracy against i haven't read race, it right? but not closely okay okay um yeah but i mean zappa is a, is a really big part of that book right um do you think that it's like his coming out party Sort of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think he did a lot to reveal Zappa to the world. Yeah, I mean, do you, do you think he, I mean, what do you think about Ligotti's contribution to the world? It's huge. It's yeah, huge. I agree. And I mean, it, you could maybe put it all in his hands. <laughs> I kind of, yeah. Without any other contribution, his might have been enough. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I Ligotti's book is probably a bit darker. Oh yeah, than, uh, on the tragic, I would imagine. And but it, it's hugely influential in introducing English speakers to the to Sapa, and it's found its way in film and television, art, all kinds. Yeah, it's huge. It, it can't be underestimated. Yeah, and yeah, because it was because of of conspiracy against the human race that it ended up, you know in the hands of of those that i can't remember the name of the author but those that wrote uh true, true detective. detective yeah which i rewatched that uh season recently and that 
the conversation between Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey in the car, which is the most Sapien part of the oh, movie, yeah. where he asks him what his take on the world was. He said, well, I call myself a philosophical pessimist. <laughs> I find it, I find it incredibly funny. I laugh out loud with yeah. that sort of a dark humor, uh, gallows humor or whatever, but. Well, it's a little on the nose to those yeah. of us that have like been immersed in this for a while. I think it's hilarious. Yeah. But it is very, very dark. Very Zapfian. Maybe it might be, it might have out Zapfian Zapfian too. It's very Ligatian. <laughs> it's very Ligatian. I mean, she... and the, the writer admitted later that he almost lifted those from Ligatian. I think he definitely yeah. lifted those from Ligatian and didn't pay any dividends yeah. for it at all. I mean, which is a whole other Ligotti subject. Fine with it, I think. Probably. For the, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for. Ligotti, especially in in those on those subjects, right. but I mean, I do think there's a a major part of Ligotti who's just happy that yeah the work is being appreciated right. and me too and the thoughts are but out I, there. I think that really brought awareness of Ligotti and Sapfa into yeah. the, into the general public. Yeah, like people listen to Matthew McConaughey and say, "Hey, wait a minute, yeah, I think I believe that too." What do you think Zap would have? thought about contemporary antinatalism i mean just i again i know you know that's it's still a world that you're new to right um and we've we know we talked a little bit about what he would have thought about the more like the activist side of it but i don't know it just any thoughts you might have like what do you think he would have thought about benatar's work or Ligotti even yeah i it's hard to say obviously but yeah um i, I don't know i Nowadays, we have a lot more niche um, philosophy. Yeah. Where, like, yeah. Where you can have a person whose whole entire world revolves just around antinatalism. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hi. Yeah. I think that would be very foreign to some. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I think that there wasn't so much niche thought like that. You, the, the, the the schools of thought were much larger. Yeah. So he, he's, he's wrestling with philosophical pessimism versus some sort of yeah. opposing optimism. I know he didn't. He didn't identify himself as a philosophical pessimist. Later, he said, "I'm a nihilist, not a yes. philosophical pessimist." Yeah, and he does seem to criticize Schopenhauer and on the tragic, or maybe the pessimistic conclusions. But usually, when you hear a person reject pessimism, it's not in favor of nihilism, <laughs> right? Right. It's in favor. You know, that's almost worse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So he, I think he he thinks we're living in an amoral universe yeah and that's why he's nihilistic but yeah so i think it would the, the niche component of antinatalism would be foreign to him once he became a, i don't know it's hard to speak for a person of but, course of course but yeah. I, I think he would be agree with he would probably enjoy the 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 arguments and the debates and the objections and that he you know he raised some of his own like i said yeah to his own positions so i think he was fully he would fully enjoy the the dialogue yeah for sure. Uh, as far as that, I don't know. It's hard to say. The activism, he, I think he could go either way. I mean, it's hard to hard to know for sure. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't see him being completely opposed to it. It might take him some while to figure out what the heck it is in the first place. As a niche, we're all that we're as all the world in general. <laughs> we're all at that same point though with antinatalist activism. Yeah. What the hell is it? What the hell are we trying to do? Yeah. 
what chances do we have? <laughs> like, what does it look like? So he's yeah. like, wait, what's the plan again? <laughs> I mean, it, antinatalists themselves extraordinarily divided right. on if it should be a form of activism sure. or not. You know, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's very contentious. But I mean, I I'd love to know. We again, we've spoken about this on and off, but Zap has had this huge impact now. He's got whether this he huge fan page, whether he likes it or not, you know, whether he would have been proud of it or not. I mean, that's, you know, I'm sure he'd be proud. Uh, yeah, I, I would hope so. Um, but I'm curious to know your thoughts on his his legacy, uh, the, you know, the works that he's inspired, the impact he's had, particularly now that the dawn of antinatalism is, is, is a growing presence in the world, mm -hmm. you know, and again, ha has had this big in impact on on the arts, you know, especially specifically in the form of True Detective. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I'm not really sure what I'm asking here, but I just I I, I wonder if you have any sort of vision on how that will develop further. You know. Yeah. Well, of course, I'm hopeful that the the publication of this translation will cause a proliferation in interest in Zappa. I hope so too. And, you know, the the yeah. interest in Zappa among antinatalists is just a small yeah group of people who could potentially be interested in Zappa. Hundred percent. The the, the range of fields is huge. I mean, yeah. the, the dramaturgists, literary critics, um, biologists, psychologists, sociologists, and there's political elements, theologians. Yeah. And, and there's, you know, there's, there's elements of the book that speak to all these different disciplines. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that it will see a growing interest in Safa, which will include a growing, I'm, I'm positive that there will be doctoral dissertations written on, without question on it. there will be yeah. articles there'll be books attempting to interpret it i thought it, originally my plan was nobody will ever publish my translation so i'll just read the book and then write a uh write a book a commentary really that was your that was your plan a commentary yeah <laughs> nobody's going to publish my i love it uh so there'll be commentaries on it there'll be arguments about it there'll, yeah, be, podcasts, without question. there'll be songs you know so yeah, i think yeah, it'll, yeah. It'll grow, and uh, I'm hopeful that it'll be it'll grow in a good direction and be fruitful. And I'm going to be here for every bit of it. <laughs> future future not podcast if, not guests. If, not if your plan works. Well, that's well. That's, <laughs> I I don't think I plan was going to work in my lifetime. So uh, many more episodes of exploring antinatalism. Oh, yeah, you'll, be, for you'll sure. be here, just not your children. No, <laughs> <laughs> they will. Yeah, I will. What, what, what is his quote again? I will uh, the, the the I I will leave the earth in silence in silence yeah, yeah forever after so um you'll leave them back there in the nothingness they come from exactly exactly and they return to Schopenhauer again <laughs> <laughs> so is before we move on just sort sort of our final thoughts um I mean this has been this has really been like an incredible uh, interview we've covered so much yeah, ground and so much been yeah fun. thank you I mean is there anything else about on the tragic that like maybe we haven't touched on that you'd like to say. Oh wow! I mean, it's hard to it's hard to summarize 570 pages and sure. four years of work, you know, into a yeah. couple of questions on a podcast. So I'm sure there's a lot we've missed. It's a very very dense book. I mean, yeah. parts of it are quite readable. For there's a lot of lay interest in in Sattva. Yeah, people who aren't necessarily used to reading philosophical dense philosophical words. Yeah. you know, some of it will be a struggle to get through, especially the last chapter where it's basically a review of literature his contemporary literature on the tragic yeah it's quite a slog getting through it but okay yeah it's quite readable in other sections and yeah i created an index which didn't exist before that oh, hopefully wow. okay. will help people and for some people it might end up being more of a reference 
You're like, I wonder what Zappa said about Hamlet. And they can look yeah. it up. Well, that's very useful. Thank you. And, and, then, and then in the academic world, I think, um, you know, it's a it's a lot a lot like a book like Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, where yeah, I'm hoping and I believe it belongs in the sort of the philosophical canon and will be debated by academics and yeah, who knows? Maybe like Nietzsche, one day there'll be a class devoted entirely to Zappa. Oh, I I, I could see a class being devoted to antinatalism. Maybe there's already been there have been little here and there, but not much, yeah. not much at all. But I definitely think. I hope I can only yeah. hope that that's that's happen. that will happen for sure. But I mean, Zappa definitely deserves it all all his own, even even devoid of that subject entirely. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's definitely something far deserved. It'd be a great a great cl uh, class where you just talked about the book. I just think I've that had this is going like to chat with other philosophers. Yeah, books. just just on one book, yeah. the entire entire semester. Just on, I absolutely. Well, it's certainly long enough and yeah. dense enough. And I just <laughs> but I just want to say that you know even from from this interview. Everything you've told me, I mean, it it totally changes my mind about the kind of thinker that I assumed that he was. Mm, I think yeah. in, a, in in many ways, I mean, I've been told so many times that he wasn't a very like he you'd never really know what he meant by something, or he mm. wasn't a very um, what's the word I'm looking for like technical thinker. He wasn't mm. a very like nothing he said was very exacting it's it was quite, a little bit more like charon where it's, it's like he said a lot of things but they were more like aphorisms not that he wrote in aphorisms but that the that his philosophy was almost more aphoristic because he never really sort of knew where he was headed or going and i don't think that's the case at all now no in yeah. fact i think it, it, he it's actually it's, the opposite it's his strongest attempt to yeah to formulate his thoughts about the human condition in as scientific a way as he possibly can so yeah it's um it's quite precise yeah and he, he shuns uh abstraction that's meaningless and yeah yeah, yeah. that's absolutely criticizes it. well i absolutely cannot wait to read it uh ryan you obviously you have accomplished the seemingly impossible <laughs> and finished this uh this massive work that uh, and we are really are truly also appreciative thank you absolutely. so much um perhaps it's uh too early yet to think about the future you have mentioned, though, several other works that you're working on, some of them Zap-related, some of yeah. them not. But, I mean, may I ask, what is next for you? What are you, what's the next big thing? What are you working on? Yeah, so right now I'm working on some of, uh, translating some of Zappa's shorter works. At the moment, I'm translating a short article, essay that he wrote. It was published in news, Tromso newspaper in 1933. It's called, in English, Experience Supply and Experience Demand. Okay. And it's very prescient. 1933, he's talking about the proliferation of experience opportunities and, and input. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to the needs that human beings have for experience. Okay, interesting. And it, it sounds a lot like what a, a current a contemporary social critic might say about there's too much experience. Much There's a surplus of experience and the, the need of human beings okay is overwhelmed by this just barrage right of experience and in the very last line in the book he says something concludes that we we didn't actually need the 20th century it oh it's just about the proliferation of input yeah by uh, market forces and things so that'd be that sounds great for the contemporary reader so that's uh that's in a collection of shorter works that i'm working on and we already basically have a tentative agreement between Peter Lang and the Safa Foundation to put that out. So I Excellent. expect that to happen. 
I don't know how long it'll take. I'd estimate about a year. Okay. Okay. And then, um, well, all the tragic will keep us busy. Yeah. And before yeah. that, you know. And I mentioned the the Jesus play, the, yeah. the lost son or the prodigal son. I'm about two thirds of the way through first run at it, but I don't, we'll see with that one if if there's interest in getting it out there in English. Uh, Voice your interest. Yeah. Down below comments. Yeah. If, yeah. Peter, of course, the publisher needs to see that there's actually sure. of course. interest. Um, and then I also have a sort of a couple side projects of translation. There's a Schopenhauer. So Schopenhauer, uh, I'll, I'll try to be brief with this, but Schopenhauer lived most of his life in Frankfurt in Germany in, in, a, in an apartment building. And the apartment building owner also lived in the building and he had children. Mm -hmm. And one of his, these children used to interact with Schopenhauer. Oh, okay. Like, typically Schopenhauer is seen as this grumpy, angry guy, famously yeah. pushed a woman down the stairs, yeah. had to yeah. pay her for the rest of her life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but this, one of these children later wrote a short book about her experiences really? with Schopenhauer and she presents a completely different picture of him. Wow. About how playful he was and the different things that uh, her and that her sibling, I can't remember if there's one or two siblings, they would visit Schopenhauer and, and all these different uh, experiences she had. I'm still trying to pin down the fullest version of it yeah. and verify the authenticity of, of it. Okay. That. Right. But I I do have a project to, to oh my god I try to translate amazing that. work because yeah. there's so yeah nobody has that sense. except except for those paintings of him with his dogs yeah which offer such a different idea of right. who he, of the kind of man he was but I, I suspect you know like Kant the picture of Kant is that he was this um, sort of uh, obsessively anal retentive guy yeah. who every day he would pass by the same house at the same time people would set their watches to him right. But there have been biographies of him since. It turns out that he had a close English wealthy merchant friend who spent a lot a lot of times in Königsberg where he lived. And uh, it was actually that guy who was the one who was inviting oh. Kant to his house for dinner. Okay. And he was the one who was so punctual. Right, right, right. So Kant had to wow. get there at the right time. So he's passing that house. <laughs> Every day, not because of his own requirements, but because of the requirements. And his whole personality has been painted like right. that. Because oh, so, so I suspect some things like that have happened with Schopenhauer. Yeah, I'm hoping to get this um, this woman's account of her interactions with him when she was a child. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. I would. Yeah, we'll see. I, I we'll hope see that, it happens. I wish you much success on that Thank endeavor. You. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So, Ryan, the, the new translation of On the Tragic, the the due date or the the release, release date. date has changed. I mean, we thought it was February 28th. It's now, we think. Currently, it's March 30th, but that is tentative, so uh, we'll, we'll see. Okay, excellent. And that we're, will be we're reviewing Peter Lang. The, reviewing the proof now, so we're, we're right on, almost to the finish line. Amazing, amazing. So exciting. Um, I Some people in the world that I've spoken to, like Tim, have been able to make a pre-order already. I've been in the process of trying to make the pre-order. It doesn't seem like it's available yet like uh for americans to make pre-orders i let me know if any americans yet have have made a successful attempt to pre-order it however um i'm going to be continuously updating the newest information in the description so uh links and and finalized release dates or pre-order dates 
will be in the description. So please check back um, if, if it's not there already. Yeah, and if I get any updates, I'll, I'll let you know. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, well, okay, Brian, thank you so much for your incredible book. Um, congratulations to you. It's an incredible achievement to have uh, tr made this translation. Um, I, I really cannot wait to read On the Tragic. It's sort of a dream come true to finally have uh, this work available to American audiences. And, you know, it just, it, it really does sort of feel like um, this incredible chance to finally get to like know this thinker who's been a, a really like in the background integral part of my right. life for the last 14 years of right. my antinatalism. And uh, so I really think you're giving a remarkable gift to the antinatalist mm -hmm. community and not just the antinatalist community, all of the people that will be interested in this work. And I think it's going to have a tremendous impact. So it's been lovely uh, having you join me here today at home, the first in-person uh, edition of Exploring Antinatalism. Uh, this has been a lovely chat. And yeah. uh, thank you so much for being my guest today on the Exploring Antinatalism podcast. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Hey everybody, it's Amanda! Are you looking for an excellent way of making academic antinatalist works more available across the globe? I know I am! And so I'm delighted to announce that the wonderful and award-winning Polish publishing house Towarzystwo Naukowe imienia Stanisława Andreskiego, which over the last few years has produced some exceptionally beautiful Polish editions of both original works like Antinatalizm by Mikołaj Starzyński as well as classic academic antinatalist works like David Benatar's Better Never To Have Been, has now opened an online shop featuring the magnificent antinatalist Ouroboros designed by Michał Dziadkowiec. The logo is fully customizable and available on a wide variety of products. Proceeds from all sales at the shop go directly towards the translation, production, and publication of more Polish editions by Towarzystwo Naukowe imienia Stanisława Andreskiego. What a perfect way for the antinatalist community to help assist an amazing company doing such important work making more antinatalist academic works more widely available. Link below! Towarzystwo Naukowe imienia Stanisława Andreskiego. Thank you for listening to the Exploring Antinatalism podcast. Please follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Exploring Antinatalism can also be heard on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon.com, and so many other platforms. You can email me at exploringantinatalism at gmail.com. Website designed by Visions Noirs. Please follow him at www.bionoir.com and follow him on Instagram. Logo art by Life Sucks. Please subscribe to him on YouTube and check out his shop on Etsy at www.etsy.com slash shop slash Life Sucks Publishing. Music by Mati Hairi. You can hear the whole song, Life is a Sexually Transmitted Disease with a Mortality Rate of 100% by following the link in the description. And make sure to also read his academic paper, which inspired the song, If You Must Give Them a Gift, Then Give Them the Gift of Non-Existence, in the Cambridge Quarterly of Healthcare Ethics on cambridge.org. Links below. All the best, and bye for now. <laughs> Life is no thrill compared to Neil. Life is no thrill. It's worse than Neil. So, so draw the right conclusion. Let there be still.